0: This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Small subterranean creatures that have become known over the centuries as goblins have long straddled the line between myth and reality often witnessed around quarries and inside mines, sometimes even leading those searching for gold to that one true vein, other times guiding men to their deaths, deep inside tunnels beneath the earth of Bavaria and Austria. But there are also creatures of small stature said to dwell in the caves and subterranean passages of North America sometimes being linked to events and sightings that make the search for such beings all the more strange. Join us this week on Into the Portal as we look deep within the earth, exploring tunnels and caves in search of the genesis of the goblin.
1: Hello and welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray.
0: And I'm Andrew McKay.
1: And we got part two for Genesis of the Goblin series.
0: <laughs> well done. Good, good delivery there. Yeah? Or, yeah. You sure, like that yeah, one? Okay. I liked it. Sweet. Yeah back with part two and um I kind of originally when we were um dividing these up I <clears> thought part two would be like yeah we're jumping across the pond we're getting into some crazy North American folklore here but you know what? we actually have some stuff left off in Europe Mm -hmm. to touch on here. That's really, really critical, really cool stuff.
1: It really lends a lot to the sort of, I don't even know, like the foundation of all of this, I would say. Definitely. But before we get into that, obviously we've got our housekeeping. Tiny
0: bit of housekeeping. And uh, yeah, it was really, really awesome to see this week. We had three new five-star reviews on the uh, U.S. iTunes, so so that totally made our day. Um, yeah, first one, five stars coming from, uh, laser 121, laser, love it, um, they say amazing show, history, mysteries, cryptids, and so much more. I've listened to every episode of this podcast and it makes my long commute to work so much easier, what? which is dope because that's exactly what the show is for. So that's totally awesome. Is. The second one was from, uh, stubby, stubzy 26. <laughs> Five stars, and it just says hi. Uh, You guys are awesome. I love the bubbly positivity. (laughs) I Uh,
1: thought you were just gonna say hi.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Love the bubbly positivity you guys bring to every episode. So that's cool too. Cool. And then the most recent one from February 15th Captain Selly five stars great podcast um it reads i really enjoy the topics and the banter uh they do a great job in my humble opinion and the episodes are really fun they cover some topics that aren't very common among other paranormal style podcasts and that's Mm. pretty much what we're going for and he references the uh homunculus episode that he just listened to
1: we were just talking about that episode very
0: serendipitous
1: yeah and the whole what was that movie
0: oh gosh we got to pull it up again the guy where it's like to a new world of and monsters right (laughs) that epic line and we had it in a a Facebook post or something
1: yeah I can't remember I think it was like Dr. Frankenstein or something like that or Bride of Frankenstein Bride of
0: Frankenstein was it Bride
1: of Frankenstein? I don't know. It was something like
0: that. We're going to... Co- whatever it is, we are going to figure it out and cover it on Film Friday, I think, right? <laughs> yeah. And once right? And once again, we do have our uh, the uh, ITP bulldog in the background here just snorting and wailing away, but I'm not going to stop the recording for it. Stella, can you just shut up?
1: Come on. I am not to be going to call her a bulldog. She's like our very own
0: cryptid creature because she's oh, more man. like
1: a cross between like a gargoyle slash gremlin. The
0: noises this dog <laughs> makes is just... We've said it a million times and we've never actually done it. We need to record these sounds because people... People wouldn't even believe it's coming from a boxer bulldog. <laughs> they wouldn't. It's like just monstrous <laughs> like sometimes. Sounds from
1: hell from hell. Oh like. my god, <laughs> totally. From
0: the depths of the pit of Haslowska or something. <laughs> oh man. Okay, we're getting a little off topic here. Okay. But uh, yeah, thank you for those reviews, you guys. Appreciate really that. appreciate it. That's
1: really cool. Um, well, I think we're just getting into a bit of a recap here. Let's just, before we dive right into our second part here, um, let's just go through what we covered in part one, just yeah. briefly here. That we obviously good. delved into the origins, the genesis of all this stuff, uh, more ancient forms of goblin lore, including um, ancient Greece was a big one, right? We have the Calacanzaros, a few different versions, kind of bleeding into the whole, like, pagan medieval era. We talked quite a bit about um, all the... uh,
0: The kobold kobold in Germanic Mm -hmm. uh, folklore that would have sort of developed out of that, yeah, that pagan Europe and uh, into... um, yeah, creatures that were associated with Christian beliefs, too, as well. And exactly. into demonology and things like that.
1: Exactly. And then that's where we kind of had this interesting sort of split between goblins that appeared more so almost along the lines of, like, house elf kind of sort of things where they're a little bit more helpful. Maybe can, can be compared to, like, the brownies of, say, UK lore, that type of thing. Yeah. But then again, there there's kind of, like, this... <clears throat> it, it is ambiguous, right? Because they can almost be both. And... We mentioned one in particular that we're gonna get into right now, um, the red caps and how we, we portrayed them as basically being these
0: benevolent little helpers, but they're really a little bit more nefarious than that. <laughs> yeah, or at least they can be. Um yeah. They they are they are sometimes um, you know, nice. Well that's just it. Yeah. <laughs> but, so you get uh,
1: multiple or sorry, um, variations of accounts where these things can either do good do bad or be somewhere in the middle definitely and then as well we did cover uh before we dive into exactly the cop talking about the red caps i just want to mention briefly again the whole paracelsus right. the ties to alchemy the whole idea that these creatures could be what we're kind of referred to as elementals so they're sort of like these again right more ambiguous um less certain sort of parts of our physical world, but they kind of bleed into the more metaphysical. they
0: were almost like... Well, yeah, it's almost like the way I read it or perceive it is like almost that goblins or these types of creatures described as elementals are, in certain cases or contexts, the physical manifestation of the elements, right? Or of Mm. the... Of the metaphysical world that we most often can't interact with or can't see.
1: Exactly, like kind of like beyond our perception, so to speak. Right. And this whole idea that Paracelsus had, it was almost like a binary between... So each of the elements, the fire, water, wind, air, or sorry, wind and air is the same thing. Fire, water, water, earth, Earth. that's what I'm missing, and air. Um, All of these four categories had a visible, tangible sort of... um, yeah exactly that like a physical form and then they had this less physical less tangible sort of spiritual form if you want to get into that like he kind of phrased it differently but again that's basic idea here and we're going to kind of be working with that as a possible framework for understanding what's going on in north america when we get to there and then as well in Europe and all
0: that it's kind of funny because obviously Paracelsus gets a little crazy gets a little out there with Mm -hmm. a lot of the ideas we've talked about regarding him and other episodes and stuff but Mm -hmm. it does there is some crossover there are some line parallels to be drawn to the yeah the experiences and the way in which other things are kind of seen right Mm -hmm. um yeah so we'll get into ideas of interdimensionality and all kinds of weird stuff but yes lifting yeah, the veil or
1: different it, layers and anyways
0: yeah. there's substance to it though it's not hairy all hairy fairy
1: um, no
0: it's uh yeah anyway we're gonna get, i'm <laughs> excited i'm excited it's,
1: okay uh, before we get into all these different types of goblins in north america and this phenomena taking place over on our side of the pond we have exactly one type of goblin that we did reference in part one didn't get into very much detail but we're going to kind of go there and this was kind of brought to our attention by <clears throat> quirky shark we interact with them on uh Twitter, on, I think, on, right? No, no, on mm. or is it Twitter? No, I think it's yeah, it's inter- Instagram. Sorry. Okay, cool. Yeah, they messaged us and said like, oh, just FYI, Red Caps not as benevolent as you might think. <laughs> totally,
0: and I'm glad. I mean, we didn't get into a ton of detail on them at all, but we did make a loose reference that they're mostly yeah. benevolent. It was a
1: passing reference. Mm-hmm.
0: But indeed, they are. They are not <laughs> always <laughs> this way. So. In fact, actually, they're most often referred to as malevolent, um, murderous goblins that are found in uh, border folklore. So between Ireland, Scotland, uh, British folklore kind of crosses over. They're said to inhabit essentially ruined castles along, you know, the Anglo-Scottish border and places like this. Yeah. Um, But especially places where there were scenes of, you know, especially horrific, terrible, you know, tyranny and and murderous deeds and things, right? Mm -hmm. They were drawn to these types of places. At least that's what people thought. history. Um, according to actually this guy named William Henderson, he was a 19th century folklorist and a writer. He described the Red Caps as uh, that they live in a string of ruined castles stretching along the border between England and Scotland specifically, and that they favor these castles of vi- violent tu- uh, tyrannical events. So he was the one who kind of made the specific reference to this. Uh-huh, okay. And some believe that the Red Caps' name comes from the tendency, and no- nobody really knows why, but they... Hmm. They allegedly have this tendency to soak their cap in the fresh blood of whoever seems to trespass or mess with them. <laughs>
1: their latest victim. <laughs> um,
0: hence the uh, alternative name that they're sometimes referred to as Bloody Cap.
1: Bloody Cap.
0: So definitely not um, the uh, Dobby the house uh, no. <laughs> Helpful House Elf. Oh, God. Um, Quite yeah. the opposite,
1: seemingly. That's so funny when you said... <laughs> I don't know why I just started chuckling because he said the Anglo Irish Scottish border and that just reminded me of that. What were we watching? Like literally just yesterday? Oh yeah, we made a the joke guy about said it, he's like it's an oh, island, from, obviously, from right? Dublin, you know, right <laughs> along the border of uh, Scottish. I don't and Irish. literally mean a border,
0: but I just mean like in that in the folklore of those sort of three nations. What was right? that
1: though that we were watching? And he said he was from Dublin. He's like trying to come up. with
0: Oh, what, what, thing. oh, uh, that was Seinfeld where they um, oh, right, where yeah. they pick up O'Brien and they uh, they jack the limousine <laughs> <laughs> and he ends up being a white. Star. Leader. <laughs> oh one. man, that We've was a been, good like, one. We've been like
1: just chain-watching.
0: Yeah, <laughs> gone so back to
1: awesome. it. Anyway, sorry, back onto the Red Caps. So. Yeah,
0: yeah, sorry, back to the Red Caps.
1: Scottish-Irish-British um, Red Cap. Right,
0: right. I mean, they are mostly uh, coming out of the UK, like from or, like from the British side of things, I believe. Mm. It's not so much, in. know, there's other creatures of, uh, similar similar mm-hmm. creatures in sort of specific Irish and Scottish folklore. But we're, anyway, we're getting, we're talking about Red Caps. hmm So, yeah, there's other stories that, like I said, like they will prey on the people that come into these abandoned castles. Mm. Not all the time. Sometimes mm. they will just mess with them, you know, taunt them, tease them. The Spook typical em. goblin things we've talked about. Um But Tricksters. most often they will uh, outright kill them and soak their hats in their blood. Jeez. Um, Why
1: do they need red hats, man?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Why do you need hats at all if you're living, I mean, if you're in a castle?
1: Oh, there you go. Not mm. a lot of wind <laughs> <Needs> some <laughs> mirror protection <Stop> like <laughs> that's the only reason i wear a hat i don't know i don't want right. a lot of sun you don't need a sun hat like <laughs> sorry.
0: oh my god uh, okay there's a slightly different version to this too um, okay. according to the mythical creatures guide which is essentially just an online just blog they are also sometimes known as Powry or dunter mm. um a type of malevolent murderous dwarf goblin elf or fairy that is also found in the similar border folklore so I don't really know what quite, quite what, to, what to make of that. But well,
1: okay, so that's interesting
0: because well, we get a bit of a description here too, which is kind why of... Why don't you go go for it? It's sturdy old men. That's strange. Well, remember we um, talked about this in part one, how the um, Calacanzaros were most often described as male, with
1: Mm. male features. Or wasn't
0: the Kobolds?
1: No, I think it was Calacanzaros. Okay. That's interesting, though. And you do get, we had references in part one to shape-shifting. Yeah. So these could appear as old men in one scene. Like, remember that um, anecdote about the priest in, like, uh, the 1600s, and he met his, like, basically what looked like his double, but it was a goblin? And then that's where you get this thing with, like, uh, familiars. So I have actually a story about one of these red caps being a familiar. And we had okay. this reference in relation to Sabrina in part one. Right. Where essentially a familiar is a goblin that is kind of, it's like the assistant to its sort of sorcerer master, so to speak. It's kind of like this um, uh, whole, like a symbiotic relationship between the two. And right. it's kind of his helpful magical helper or something like that. But these can obviously take on more nefarious forms too. And we have such a case in the 14th century with this man named Lord William de Solis of Hermitage Castle, which immediately makes me think of Hermitage wine. But anyways, um, okay, so this guy, de Solis, he was an interesting bird, very much hated lord of his time. He lived in exactly that, the borderlands between Scotland and England. And he was one of those people, right, because he was powerful. He was a lord. He would kind of be inducted into these um political feuds and infighting right because long history of that on in in the uk isles so oftentimes he would be switching sides between Scotland and england as the political tides turn there's one such (laughs) story that goes that essentially his there's two stories of his death and and one version is closely related to what we're talking about today with the familiars. The second version is much more cut and dry historical, that he was essentially just rounded up during one of these times of political turmoil and basically murked. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the other one is more interesting, though, and it comes about... Well, it was popularized by this ballad that was eventually collected by Sir Walter Scott. Okay. And in this ballad, um, William de Solis is kind of depicted as this huge and physically powerful man. And when he becomes lord of Armitage Castle in 1318, he basically kind of devolves into this very... Very, um, yeah, exactly. Other, like very malicious, very evil-type lord. Uh, deep vein of cruelty is how it's described. um, was basically in, imbued in him, and everyone hated him. <laughs> okay. uh, loathed by all who came into contact with him. He was very... Um, he, you couldn't really reason with him. He was very unreasonable. He had basically gone to a lot of fights in the streets. He was responsible for a lot of deaths. Uh, more than one time, he was almost lynched uh, by his own subjects, but he was saved by neighboring lords that came to his aid. Uh, but anyways, in this... work, this guy. Yeah, exactly. So in this um, story that was uh, sort of immemorialized in a ballad, um, he's basically a practitioner of black magic and the black arts, and supposedly it goes that he kidnapped local children and he would use their blood in dark rituals at this castle
0: oh okay yeah that's a that's a turn
1: that's a turn that's a bit of a turn. and um this is where we get the introduction of the familiar who is robin redcap so again we get yeah exactly so Love Robin that. Redcap wow, okay. is his, basically his evil assistant. He kind of roams the countryside at night, I would assume, because, again, they're nocturnal. But essentially, he goes and, and terrorizes the people, and him and his master, this William de Solis, are just, like, freaking just, yeah, <laughs> crazy people. But essentially, <laughs> Robin Redcap lives in a chest, and he enchants William, so he uses his magical powers to give him the ability to repel metal weapons. So now he's basically invincible. <laughs> so okay. you can't kill him with a sword. You can't kill him with a knife. You can't kill him with a bullet, right? Because that's metal too. And so, yeah, they basically had this very um, <laughs> dark reign, I guess you could describe it, yeah, no where doubt. he was practicing these dark arts, becoming more and more hated. And there's this interesting description of red caps and they're described as being very quick. So Robin Redcap would have been this like very like speedy little um like demon little thing going around and despite this like they had like these really heavy boots apparently and they always carried a pike so they're kind of like minor like but despite this they were very very quick and the only way to escape one is to quote a passage from the bible at it where it would lose a tooth i don't even know what that would do but anyways that was one really weird thing so apparently this robin Gradcap. again yeah Reign of Terror, essentially you could describe it. He's like, uh, what's that guy, Robosphere? <laughs> Robosphere's Reign of Terror. Remember okay. learning about that? Yeah, vaguely. In <laughs> like grade ten socials, <laughs> long time ago. It's like over a decade. And that's
0: the second time we've referenced grade ten socials. In I the love last, like, grade ten socials. We yeah. should teach grade ten. Socials. Let's give me some Louis Riel in here. You know what I'm saying? Please.
1: Okay, so <laughs> these guys are just like terrorizing everyone until this is where we get the second story okay. of William's death as according to this ballad. And let's just say it is bloody.
0: <laughs> okay, let's hear
1: it. Okay, so this is a quote. It says, Complaints about de Solis activities were frequently reaching the ears of King Robert the Bruce. <laughs> I don't know who that is. King Robert the Bruce himself.
0: <laughs> Brucey than the Susie.
1: Bruce, And when he was told of this latest outrage, Bruce, in exasperation, cried, Solis, Solis, go boil him in a brew. Needing no further invitation, the locals overpowered Desolus, using a specially forged chain to bind him, as ordinary ropes could not contain his supernatural powers. And they took him to the summit of the Nine Stang Rig. Rig? Nine okay. Stang Rig. Um, I guess that's a, an important place be. mountain sweep? of some sort? It sounds like it, yeah. It's like some sort of summit. And it says here, it was believed that De Solis could not be killed by ordinary means. So instead, he was boiled in molten lead in a cauldron and suspended above a large fire. When news reached the king that his wards were being taken literally, he sent soldiers to Hermitage, but it was too late. They were only able to report back what had
0: happened. Wow. That's <laughs> yeah. like a scene out of Harry Potter or something.
1: I know. It's it's creepy. And you know what doesn't make sense to me about that is that they used the one thing that he was supposedly invincible against, which is metal. They used molten lead, which is bizarre, right? Why would you just use any... Why would you just burn him alive? That's <laughs> not a... You know, that'd be easy. I suppose
0: the fact that it was Molten maybe changed the uh, its its effect. But, mm. yeah, that is a bizarre story and obviously a very good indication of why the Red Caps are mostly considered as not, not so nice to deal with.
1: Exactly. If they were uh, seen as the aid to evil lords such as this guy, even if he... I'm not even sure if this guy's just of fables or if he actually has a historical record. I haven't... <laughs> look that far. And I mean, but he was a part of UndiscoveredScotland.com. So, right,
0: okay. I, don't know. I mean, there's, a, I'm, I'm definitely seeing some connections potentially to what we were talking about with Paracelsus. I mean, obviously it's being described as black magic in this mm. legend, but there's something going on here that's beyond just, you know, a, a, black magic and alchemy were definitely equated with one another in a lot of circles, right? Like yeah. when it was going through its, uh, you know, dying days of of uh, people practicing alchemy. Exactly.
1: Those sort of perceptions it's kind of unfortunate though because a lot of alchemists obviously don't have these sort of nefarious intentions they're not kidnapping babies or children or anything they might be using dead body parts
0: but totally <laughs> like, but here, here, here's here's just a thought though like the movie we just this is going to sound like a tangent but it's not the movie we just watched primer they're dealing with science yada 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 they accidentally go watch the movie people spoiler alert okay mm-hmm. um they accidentally invent time travel. Mm-hmm. The same sort of things could happen potentially. I think in alchemy back yeah. in the day, you're trying to do one thing. Sure, you're trying to you're trying to make gold out of nothing. Maybe that's impossible. Like right, yeah. but you accidentally stumble upon something else purely on circumstance alone and mm. context and whatever. Yeah, and these types of legends pop up from potentially things like that.
1: Oh, totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, but it's interesting though because like. Like I was trying to make the distinction between, say, um, perceptions of like political evildoers or whatever, and then um, sort of like misplaced um, fears and misperceptions of, say, alchemy and what these people are actually trying to do. Right. But yeah, you you get it. Sure. I
0: (laughs) sorry. Didn't mean to hijack that from you there. No, (laughs) no, (laughs) totally. Oh.
1: One other interesting thing before we move away from redcaps is this idea that they are mentioned in Harry Potter. In the oh, they Last actually Man. are?
0: Yeah. Right, okay, right. That's Very cool. Very cool. She
1: mentions everything that's cool, right?
0: Yeah, she's on top her. of it. She's on top of it.
1: Yeah. And then she, she kind of refers to them as these goblin-like creatures that lurk in places where blood has been shed. And I guess they are referenced also in your series, the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Okay. So it makes sense, right? Obviously, it makes even more sense with the Fantastic Beasts one, right? Because... I'm assuming she's probably. I haven't really got into that series, but I'm assuming she's probably ripping off a lot of like traditional folkloric. Oh,
0: of course. The uh, Same with just the first. The, 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 yeah, all of them all, right? all like the right? hippogriff,
1: the totally. all of those sort of magical, well, even, even, um, uh, even.
0: Uh, Isn't Paracelsus in or not Paracelsus? Um, sorry, uh, Nicholas Flamel. Nicholas Flamel. Yeah. Super famous alchemist, right?
1: <laughs> I love him in the Fantastic Beast, like the second one, where he's like just like this super old guy that can't really <laughs> do much, and he's just kind of oh, I know. That was someone oh else because Nicholas Flamel ends up dying, doesn't he? Oh no 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 no. Yeah, just We're going way, back way, way in up time. Up. <laughs> We're going back in time for the for the fantastic beast, that's why, right? right the timeline's right, in like World just before World War Two. Something like that, yeah. So that makes sense that he dies later on when Harry Potter's actually alive. Right. I always get confused with that, no. Nah?
0: We should just start from the beginning. Ne- usually on Christmas time, we like to do a little marathon of the, uh, that series. Christmas tradition. But anyway, so, I mean, more or less, the red caps, these these types of goblins could really be considered more so goblins of folk folklore. Perhaps, um, yeah. Even though they have been described as being seen, and they're seen in, you know, they're found in legends like the one you just read. Um, but, and their physical description is very similar to that story we told in part one, too, um, with, oh, the name is uh, escaping me now, but the... Uh, the young couple whose uh, husband was a mining engineer, and uh, she her, and their friends witnessed those goblins in the tunnel across right. from the cottage, right?
1: Madame... Uh, uh,
0: Col- Colodzi, or something yeah. along those lines. Anyway, I don't have the part one notes right here in front of me, but um, go listen to it, people. You probably should have. <laughs> um, but yeah, they are described similarly, so I don't know if they are some more folklore or not, but they are described as coming out of the same sort of dark places, so it's not just castles and and, and uh, you know, places like that, it's, it's caves and mines and quarries and castles that are close to these types of places mm-hmm. as well. So they're still linked to the darkness, still linked to, yeah, coming out at nighttime and doing nefarious things.
1: Nocturnal, that... subterranean, and yeah, exactly the physical description. Mm-hmm. I mean,
0: even when I think of a castle, it's obviously not underground, but it's like the most... <laughs> this is going to sound stupid, but it's like the most underground feeling you could have above ground in a building. In a castle.
1: Being in a castle, right? Yeah. Like,
0: out of stone and, like... Totally. You go into the, the lower chambers or whatever and...
1: Oh, for sure. And not to mention, that, yeah, exactly that. It feels closer to it, but then those are prime places for <laughs> lots of subterranean passages to kind of extend out from.
0: Indeed. And
1: we're going to get into that, like, right
0: now. Right this second. <laughs>
1: right now. Okay.
0: So, this is something that, that we kind of, like, we held off from uh, touching on in part one because it, it's... There's so much to get to here. Yeah. They there are very very real goblin tunnels, how as some people describe <laughs> them. Yeah. Okay, colloquially we'll say like as a fun sort of reference. Yeah, they're called the Erdstall tunnels, and they are found throughout Western Europe mm-hmm. and other places around the world as well. But they are most significantly found in the southeastern German state of Bavaria and Austria, and it's essentially a type of tunnel that's just it's it's very very small. So they they are thought to have been created during the middle ages by some but others have claimed that these tunnels date all the way back to the stone age From and beyond like
1: neolithic era
0: yeah it's okay this gets really strange so this is the ground beneath southern germany okay the state of bavaria it's literally perforated with these these underground mazes when it's when you look at it There's a few different renditions of it. It looks like an ant colony.
1: It kind of does. They have been described uh, alternatively as labyrinths of vaults. So like vaults being like different chambers, like rooms and stuff. But yeah, it's it's extensive. Right. Labyrinth, right? Again, like it reminds me of like the Minotaur episode we just did.
0: like. Oh, and just that word alone. I mean, the implication is that you don't know where it goes. You don't know how far it is. You don't know how to get out when you're in it.
1: Exactly. Um, unless
0: you're the one who made it, maybe. It's,
1: and the more they uncover these using like ground penetrating radar, the more it becomes exactly that. It's like a maze. It's like these weird right. loops that go nowhere. Like, yeah, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> but
0: even with that, that's cool because it's like even with you know, ground penetrating radar, we can't get to everything, right? Because this is going through, we're going through bedrock. We're going through, Mm -hmm. we don't really know where all of these go to. But the word Erdstall. we have a reference here not actually sure where it's from but it's uh, derived from the German language um, roughly translated as earth stable or mining tunnel. we hmm. might have to check with uh, Mr. Travis Dow on that one if he can give us the uh, exact okay. translation. Hmm. Um, shout out to History of Alchemy podcast. Hmm. But um, since we're talking about alchemy so much here, right? Yeah. But um, yeah, so like whilst various types of underground tunnels are known to exist around the world, these ones uh, have features that really distinguish them from other passageways, right? Mm-hmm. So like you just said, they've been dis- described as labyrinths or vaults. Um, why don't you read this little, uh, this quote here, Amber?
1: Oh, well, there, there was this interesting thing. Um, okay. So these have a long history in Europe, but it's only, um, recently that they've kind of been incorporated into more professional investigations and that type of thing. But yeah, exactly that. So, One pioneer of these Erdstahl explorations was a guy named Lambert Karner. He uh, lived from 1841 to 1909. He was actually a priest. Really? Yeah. According to his records, he crawled through over 400 of these vaults. And it was lit by only a flickering candlelight, and he experienced all sorts of crazy things. He went through these strange, quote-unquote, strange winding passages through which one can often only force oneself like a worm. So he's literally crawling through these things. Like, it's yeah. tight. I'm, I'm trying to imagine how big this Lambert guy probably was. Probably
0: super tiny.
1: Probably, yeah. And he was just, like, an amateur archaeologist. Like, very enthusiastic, obviously, because you <laughs> would catch Definitely. me doing
0: that. There was a lot of priests that mm-hmm. fell into that category. Remember there was that one we referenced in, like, McKellie and Bembe? Like, those early uh, missionaries, right? Who were going looking for crazy oh, creatures yeah. and things like that, too.
1: Well, not even so much going specifically for that, but along the way of trying to convert these sort of... Uh, non-Christian populations, they end up hearing stuff along the way kind
0: of thing. Yeah. And then, but they get interested in it and he, you know, went out and looking for the footprints and the. Oh, things. Oh, true. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, yeah, anyway, it's just kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. With just a flickering candlelight, like, man, what if that blows out, dude? How are you going to find your way back?
1: Oh, exactly. What if you don't have any... I guess that's a good indication of the oxygen and if there's even, like, you know, a slight sort of... Um... Uh, like airflow kind of thing you could that's a good point use that as an indicator i would bring in a canary with me too uh,
0: well, yeah. the
1: classic canary in the tunnel yeah yeah but these are very interesting there's a lot of features that make these sort of unique
0: Really, like you just said, like you had to worm through some of these parts, and by all accounts, he was a small man. Like in general, these networks, they consist of very, very low, narrow tunnels that are generally an oval shape, and they're aligned either sort of vertically or horizontally, so they look very much like deliberate passageways. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, they've been found, these tunnels usually extend over a distance between 20 and 50 meters, but There's many, many points where we don't actually know how far they go.
1: Exactly. Um,
0: Or the reason why they're there, or who made them, or how old they are, Mm -hmm. (laughs) or any of those.
1: They're narrow, like maximum width of sixty centimeters or twenty four inches. Like, that's small.
0: Right. This is goblin size. Goblin size, exactly. Child size.
1: Yeah. If you haven't caught our uh, (laughs) our inferences.
0: (laughs) Right, and of course these the majority of these, the most significant of these tunnels, again, just to reiterate this, are located in the area where Kobold legend and the, the goblins of Germanic and pagan pre, mm-hmm. pre-Christian pre Europe folklore originate.
1: Totally. Um, and you know what's interesting? I actually saw a reference that's not corroborated at all, but some people were saying that these tunnels could actually probably extend all the way to like the UK. <laughs> so like underneath Yeah, ocean. I mean, there's
0: been even speculation. They ex- yeah, they extend from, from there all the way through into Turkey. Oh, wow. Um, Which has been, like, more or less disproven. Yeah. But not necessarily 100%. Who knows how deep something might be.
1: Yeah. Another really unique feature of these Erdstahl tunnels is what's known as a schluff, which means it's, like, German for slip out. Yeah. And basically what these are are extremely tight holes that are about 40 centimeters in diameter. So, again, that would be just, like... Just under 20 inches, I would imagine, like maybe 15 to 18 inches. I don't know
0: the exact conversion of that. Well, though, 60
1: centimeters is 24 inches, so 40 would centimeters be? would be about. Oh, yeah yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: But, anyways, it serves as basically transition points between tunnels and tunnels that are situated at different elevations. So it's like connective points. Yeah. So things that might have been potentially added in later as these get more complicated. Uh, I don't know. Are they, are
0: they, tra- are they, yeah, like, are people, are things living down here? Like, what's Exa- going on? Whoa, we're
1: going to get to that. Well, actually, no. Yeah, we, have, we will get to that in a second. But these slip-outs are interesting, though, because <laughs> this, is a, this is a little quote. It says, they are too narrow for older or overweight persons. A person needs to crawl under the slip-hole stand up, thereby sliding the shoulders through the skin-tight hole, allowing to crawl onto the higher tunnel. Sort of awkward wording that was um, translated from Der Spiegel. But anyways, yeah, so they've... <laughs> this is interesting. I saw reference to these slip-outs being compared to a, a particular female reproductive organ. <laughs> and some have actually cited the experience of trying to get through one of these as literally slipping into a birth canal.
0: <laughs> All righty. It's
1: that and and you know what also kind of helps paint that picture even more of like a birthing canal and like the womb is the fact that you are going into a mountain you're going into subterranean darkness and you're probably going into a wet atmosphere right like i could just picture like the drip 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 the stalactites oh, and stalagmites lovely. and all this kind of stuff
0: and and you're just slipping into this little <laughs> little womb oh you are just really painting that picture right, right? Now.
1: well it makes sense and there was actually even a series of uh I think it was like seminars or like workshops held by these uh, female healers that went into one of these caves and they were doing stuff in there. I don't know what.
0: Well, and we were just talking (laughs) about, um, we were just talking about a couple of our, our, well, our monkey god series before we started recording and the significance of death and the afterlife, um, burials inside caves and transition points inside caves. I don't know if there's any real parallels there, but that's sort of an interesting comparison. Oh, I'll get to that. Because I
1: have a whole section here on like the significance of these. There is potential spiritual significance and there is ties. Wonderful. Yeah, but essentially there are, like we refer to, there's so many of these in Europe. Um, Probably there's close to 2,000, probably more than that, known in Europe. Mm -hmm. But that's... People estimate that it's probably about 10% of what is actually existing there that we know of, and 90% of it still remains undiscovered, unmapped, and work continues to this day, where they're trying to use LiDAR, or not LiDAR, sorry, ground-penetrating radar to kind of uh, reveal these, but...
0: So that just reminds me, for some reason, of uh, Kryptonaut and the uh, subterranean overlords that... uh are eventually going to take over the
1: earth <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh yeah we're gonna get there <laughs> but yeah this is cool because a lot of these sometimes they're referred to as what i said vaults sometimes they're chambers sometimes they're just tunnels sometimes they're what are known as like galleries so you get more extensive sort of chambers seemingly galleries. and yeah this is interesting i had a quote here this was from Dr. Spiegel again i said here many of these galleries are are connected to the sites of former settlements Um, tunnel entrances are sometimes located in kitchens of old farmhouses, near kitchens and cemeteries, or in the middle of a forest. The atmosphere inside is dark and oppressive, much as it would be inside an animal den. (laughs) Yeah. So then again, it's like, okay, so if these are located underneath, um, old farmhouses near churches, cemeteries, so is this like storage? What's going on? What is the purpose of these
0: tunnels? Hmm. That's my
1: big question now.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I mean... Yeah, exactly. Who made them and why? Mm-hmm. Um, so another real strange feature about them is that there's only really one point, right? An entry point. Yeah. There's no necessary second exit from an right. individual entry point. We Which don't is know quite where... common,
1: right? With caves, like mm-hmm. man-made caves where you have that, because ex- it's for gases, it's for airflow, it's for all sorts of reasons. Like I'm not a cave expert by any means, but I, you know, like no, there are practical applications for having an
0: extra exit. Right, so it's like some tunnel systems feature loop tunnels, you know. So at the end of a tunnel, but I mean, so oh, there's no real see. indication as to where this go where they where this goes. Huh. I mean that that's another that's the labyrinth. You
1: know what that right? That loop uh, reminds me of Ainsworth. You know they have the underground cave there, and it's like a loop that you go
0: in. Oh yeah, and then you go yeah. That just carved out by water, exactly. Obviously, but I that's mean,
1: natural. These are man-made.
0: Just like definitively, like yes. they are not from limestone deposits that have been washed away, right? Um, no, which is what we get with other cave systems in North America.
1: Exactly. It's very clear that these are built by professionals.
0: Definitely, <laughs> professional Yeah, professional miners. What have we been describing as miners and living in mines? Anyway, (laughs) um, so anyway, so like some people think that these were underground bunkers, potentially for hiding important things, storage. But it's like that's shaky. Big pain in the ass to get stuff in and out.
1: And not to mention that they haven't found any um, evidence to suggest that anything was ever stored there. And not to mention that a lot of these tunnels actually would have been flooded during the winters.
0: Right. That's another strange feature.
1: Mhm.
0: Like yeah,
1: man-made th- yet flooded sometimes because of groundwater levels. Right.
0: Anyway, others argue that the I mean, you know, the complete lack of archaeological evidence suggests that the tunnels have never ever been inhabited at all, right? Mm. Or or you used know, for or hiding, use, yeah. Like, you know, or like used better. frequently, yeah. Or whatever, right? regularly. Or that's an indication that they're very, very old, and anything that was left in there got cleared out. A oh, long totally. Time yeah, ago. like
1: used by later populations or something in the area. Because right. even with like the Giza pyramids, you get things like tools being left behind in certain chambers that they're uncovering now and stuff.
0: Exactly. So this is
1: bizarre. The the complete absence of any of this is weird.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Except Absence of any physical evidence. It's very strange. One
1: thing that's coming to mind now is like, what if it's all just washed away by the fact that it gets flooded? That's another reason. But, the, that but, you... that,
0: but then you'd think at least some of the higher or it would collect
1: in one area of the caves like all of the physical objects that could get moved kind of thing
0: i mean unless there's points where any of the um groundwater that does flood in when it does end up draining out it's one of those like almost like the oak island money pit type holes so it's like where the hell does this even go we don't (laughs) know where the exit is like you know what i mean that's a good Um, point i like that we don't really know at this point someone's got to go down there Tie a rope on me and send me down. Oh, and
1: there has been people,
0: for (laughs) sure. So yeah, again, from Der Spiegel, um, this is a quote. Archaeologists um, have also been surprised to find that the tunnels are almost completely empty and appear to be swept clean, as if they were abodes for the spirit. Homes for the spirits, eh? Huh. Um, literally, like, as if they have been cleared out. Yeah. And you gotta wonder, I think, maybe there was some sort of, like, weird, like, I don't know, Nazi activity going on during the Second World War. They got their tiniest little Nazis to go in there and, like, hide <laughs> stuff and then clear it all out when they were done. Um, I don't know, but, yeah. Yeah. It is super, super weird. There is um, some
1: things that have been found, though. It's not completely, completely not clean. Not
0: completely. Um, they're sparse. Sparse. There was the remnants, uh, the remains of a small fire, the coal remains. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was discovered in Zell uh, in northern Austria and has since been dated to around 1030 to 1210-ish mm-hmm. AD. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, we're working with the Middle Ages there, right? Mm-hmm. Um but again, it's like, was this just a one-off vagabond? You know.
1: Uh, oh, exactly. Yeah, just someone that stumbled upon it and used it for convenience. Because yeah. you would think you'd find more than just one fire.
0: You well, if it, there was some. Yeah. If it was a
1: pattern of being used for that kind of thing.
0: Right. Anyway. Hmm. Additional evidence has been used to date the tunnels. That has been used to date the tunnels is a slip passage. Um, yeah, uh, fairly central. Where is this? Sorry, this is in... Uh, uh... It's
1: called Rot MC. Okay. It's fairly central. It's a small municipality um, situated between Stuttgart and Nuremberg in Germany. Okay.
0: All right. And it, it has since had work done to it. It's been enhanced with stones to make it narrower. And the stone additions dated between the sa- similar dates, like 1034 and 1268. So the, so stone, the stone age reference mm-hmm. is still in play because well, we're dating it, yeah. the... Changes made.
1: Exactly. It's almost like getting a renovation. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's the important, well, kind of a part of the mystery here is dating these tunnels. Yeah. And like we kind of mentioned off the bat, like there is debate going on about this. Like there's one guy I came across, his name's Henry, or sorry, Heinrich Kusch. Kusch? Kusch? Kusch. He's a prehistorian from uh, the Austrian city of Graz, and he kind of believes that these sort of medieval um, leanings are kind of incorrect. And he actually suspects he's the guy that thinks it's like Neolithic from like 5,000 years ago. And basically, he's been probing. <laughs> he's been probing the Steiermark region with giant drills for gateways to the underworld. Well,
0: that's just badass.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. So, that giant drills. Because it's interesting, because even like construction companies, for example, like they. When they're digging up for roads, when they're doing infrastructure projects, they'll come across these quite often. And then what do they do? Like, they don't know what to do. They're not archaeologists. They're not professionals like that. So all they do is fill them in. (laughs) So it's like, you're going to get fragmentary finds, I'm thinking, now, right? Because if they're anywhere near accurate with their 10% discovered, 90% undiscovered, then there's still a lot here, right? Definitely. But anyways, there is other, sort of the more prevailing school of thought will place them a little bit, well, just in, in the middle, I would say, between these two competing theories of, like, the medieval versus neolithic, and... Yeah, so basically a lot of people now are thinking that it's built during what's known as the migration period of okay. Germany, which is called the Völkerwanderung. I love German <laughs> words like that, where it's like an entire concept <laughs> in one word.
0: Yeah, that's pretty neat.
1: The migration period. So this happened in the 5th and 6th centuries, and it's described as like entire tribes migrating away and leaving their homes, abandoning, abandoning everything, including the cemeteries of their ancestors. Wow. And so One assumption is that these tunnels and galleries were created... So the dead could be venerated? I don't understand that, though, because you don't find any Indication form Indication of... that there's
0: symbolism of that at all. No, there's exactly. No... Okay,
1: yeah. So no symbolism. No religious sort of, um, like, drawings or, or writings or iconography, definitely. No bones. So it's not like an ossuary.
0: No offerings of any kind.
1: No offerings. No,
0: like, jewelry or... And
1: mind you, I'm definitely not an expert on 5th and 6th um, century German culture or pre-German
0: culture or whatever. But cultures but... of any kind leave things behind.
1: Exactly. So Anything
0: it's, at all. It's
1: weird, man. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I really buy into the whole thing that these were created as like, yeah, for the dead. Kind it's an of.
0: interesting idea.
1: And again, it does play into the whole monkey god thing, right? The idea that these are places for the dead. They're sacred places, spiritual connections, getting closer to the afterlife and the underworld and etc. cetera. Well, maybe
0: we would find areas of these tunnels that do have these indications, but they are far, far, far further down in chambers that we don't even know exist. There you go. Possibly. Exactly. Because you're not finding evidence in what we see. So maybe that's just the driveway. The house the house is a lot further down. <laughs> you
1: know what <laughs> I mean? <laughs> and at any rate, um, like we mentioned, these were definitely built by professionals. They are not natural. They are man-made. And it was described as like basically the builders would have been in a kneeling position and used these wedge-shaped tools that they would have held in both hands. And so no apparently no supporting planks were used they just kind of used these it was kind of a strategic serpentine form that reduced pressure from the surrounding earth on the actual physical passage So they could get away with not having these beams and these whatever else sort of infrastructural yeah. kind of elements
0: i mean it's pretty clever
1: it is really clever for ancient people and I,
0: knowing what type of rock you're dealing with
1: oh yeah yeah and the weight of everything yeah. like the the weight load of everything totally. like. It's insane. It's
0: just a bunch of little Ed lead skalnins in there just like chiseling away. They're so skinny and they just know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> know how to keep up heavy stuff.
1: <laughs> they just have a special understanding of physics.
0: I mean, apparently. <laughs> Possibly.
1: Where was Ed from again? He was like he was from
0: Latvia.
1: Okay. Well, yeah.
0: Er, Latvia?
1: It? I think it might have been.
0: I think I think he was from Latvia, yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't know why. I'm just thinking, like, oh, what if his ancestors were involved in this? Because they did have a extended background in a particular type of rock work, wasn't it? Like, he was in Decorien, his whole family. He
0: was in Decorien. And if yeah. I'm not mistaken, he did have some connection to Germany, possibly working there before the UK and then And there a the whole America. revolution
1: and all that kind of stuff. Yeah.
0: The... Anyway, we're getting off topic here. But, uh...
1: <laughs> but, yeah, just going back to that whole... The idea that these could have been built by these Vol- Volker wandering Germans or pre-Germans that are kind of just these tribes up and just leaving everything. hey? Eh? It's like pretty wild. They're abandoning the cemeteries of their ancestors. So maybe, so maybe actually that might make sense then because if the dead are already buried, they're not building other tombs for them, but they're building memorials for them and places for them to be venerated. I don't know. I don't know if I'm buying that, but anyways, that was one possible alternative explanation. Yeah, we're
0: open to all explanations, so mm-hmm. I mean that's interesting for sure.
1: I thought this was a really fun story though. This came from 2011, just related to these tunnels, and it came from a couple living in Glon near Munich.
0: <laughs> Glon.
1: Glon, and they're just a couple of like you know rural <laughs> farmers, the the Gretheners are their names, and they actually had a cow fall through the entrance of one of these tunnels. <laughs> <laughs> It's <laughs> Like this
0: poor cow. cow got
1: stuck. Oh, poor man. old Bessie. Oh, jeez. I know. And somehow they got it out. I don't know how. Just like tie a rope around it and get it out with the tractor or something? Guess, Probably. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. Get the backhoe out there and just, yeah, I don't know.
1: <laughs> that reminds me of that Canadian song about the trucks get stuck in the mud. And then you go get the Chevy, get stuck in the mud. <laughs> oh, then you go get the Dodge, get stuck in the mud. <laughs> I can't even remember who sang I don't that. Even know what that. Remember is. my aunt showed us that? Oh, Anyways. my God. <laughs> Interesting to say the least. Indeed. But, okay, so these ger- Gretheners and their cow, they uncovered this hole, and Rudy, the husband, he decided he wanted to explore this hole. And so he went down, and quite quickly he ran out of oxygen. So there's oh, not okay. a lot of oxygen down there. And so they ended up calling, I don't even know who they called, but a series of geologists and land surveyors kind of, commenced an investigation it's one of the first right like this is like the first wave of actual legitimate geologists people that are professionals that want to yeah. kind of uncover this mystery right and so they started using in conjunction with the state Office of Historic Preservations of Munich they use ground penetrating radar like we said before and tried to sort of reveal the extent of this tunnel. And this one in particular was actually collapsed on one end. Oh, okay. So they couldn't follow it completely to where it needed to be or where it originally went to. Um, but they did actually come up with a piece of decaying wood that was found further along the inside of the tunnel. And that was brought up by this investigator of the group. He was one of the leaders. His name was Dieter L. Alborn. And he ended up grabbing it before returning to the surface quick because, again, he was running out of oxygen. And I don't know why they weren't using oxygen tanks. <laughs> that uh, seems yeah, like a no-brainer. It might just
0: be something but, you'd have in case.
1: <laughs> yeah. So they, I was trying to find in the article, like, if they had actually got around to dating it, but I couldn't really see that, which really irked me. And I was like, oh, come on. Like, how old would that piece of wood have to be? Like, you know, I'm dating, or I'm going to assume it was probably dating, to about the medieval, but I'm not mm-hmm. going to make any assumptions with that one.
0: I'm assuming, but you're not going to assume. <laughs> I'm assuming, but I'm not going to assume all right just call me out of that
1: (laughs) (laughs) so let's get into like these purposes then sure because like we said like secret hideaways escape tunnels ancient mines like did they have spiritual religious significance and you've already brought up yeah these lost city the monkey god there was that one ossuary that called the cave of the glowing skulls that was uncovered in honduras that's right and yeah there was all sorts of treasures that went along with it, though. There was gold, jade pottery, all sorts of stuff. It was
0: very much like this is the ultimate offering. Like, this is the transition point, right? Between Mm. the living and the dead.
1: Yeah. Um, So very... Well, I'm not going to say very obvious, but, like, come on. Like, it's... It's not like these where there's just... a. Complete absence of anything. Right. One small fire. That to me speaks to exactly what you said, like a squatter that kind of came across and was like, okay, like I'll use this for a little bit. Like
0: pretty much. And if there was only
1: the fire and nothing else, like no bones, like of like, say like a meal, like the remains of a meal or anything else or.
0: There's no hieroglyphs. There's no, you know, there's nothing. No. It's like, as it was meant to be a mystery, right? It was like, whoever was, whoever did dig them, it was very much to be a secret passageway. Mm -hmm. It wasn't meant to be figured out yeah you know what I
1: mean? yeah there was this one farmer um this was a different this wasn't the glon couple but he has a tunnel on his property as well and he always claims that when he goes inside of it he feels this very strange sense of reverence okay and he said <laughs> you feel like a hopi indian inside uh they too used to sit in caves in the hope of finding answers
0: interesting
1: so, yeah.
0: Sit in caves in the hope of Didn't finding did Gandhi answers. go sit in a
1: cave forever? And, or no, no, am I thinking of the original... Who was the original um, Buddhist guy that... Was it just Buddha? He went <laughs> right. and sat in a cave forever?
0: Something like that? <laughs> 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 that sounds right.
1: But that's just it, that though, right? Like, the idea that this reverence, this spiritual connection
0: definitely there's yeah I mean and, and it's ubiquitous around the world in a lot of different cultures mm-hmm. these and it there is something about the even just the the physical transition between like you know the world outside of a, the entrance to a mountain essentially through a cave and there's just a feeling like if you've ever even gone on like a mine tour or something like this is reminding me of when I was a kid and I would go on the mine tours out in Rossland mm, um yeah. and how you really do feel like you're gone into another world. Right. Um, Right. Even if it isn't, you know, it's just a mind tour, but you can really see how if like people are in tune or in touch with different things, how this crossing over going through is sort of a metaphorical portal, if you will, um, could, you know, was more significant or could have been more significant. Like when you would go into these things, like it's 35 degrees outside in the dead of summer, you take two steps in and you are frozen solid. Yeah. And, there's stalactites and stalagmites everywhere, and you weave around and the rock the color changes and, and... and you keep going deeper and deeper and it and as you go deeper, the world seems more and more different. It's yeah. very, imagine, very strange.
1: Imagine being like like combining like psychotropic substances with that too. Like I'm thinking of the Minoans again, right? Like when we looked at Crete and the labyrinth and how they had, I can't remember what the cave was called, but there was this one very significant cave where they had like a, an idol of a goddess and they would go yeah. in there and they would it wasn't peyote. <laughs> That's North American. But it was some sort of substance they would use and they would kind of like hallucinate and become closer to the gods. Right.
0: Which was a you know, <laughs> the case with a lot of, you know, just shamanic practice and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And there's something to it.
1: Yeah. I yeah. Or there's something to it. So there's something real in the perception of what's happening when you're living that experience, I feel. Absolutely. And we're kind of crossing lines, I feel like, now we're going to like a whole like sort of ethereal plane but again right like we, we are kind of trying to make these connections between these sorts
0: of tunnels and goblin lore sightings of goblins yeah the the, the genesis of the lore for sure
1: mm-hmm, exactly
0: so where are we at here? The significance Oof. of the folklore, I suppose, is where we'd be getting into now. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, for some of the locals, these tunnels have been associated with, of course, these legendary creatures like the kobolds mm-hmm. specifically, or which of course directly translates to goblin in mm-hmm. German, right? Um, but also other creatures too, elves, gnomes, things like that, that we've referenced before, creatures who have said to have built them or believe to live in similar passageways, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Small and tucked away. Um, yeah, so in some places, fancy names have been given to the stalls to sort of reflect their association with local fol- folklore, such as the, here here I go, my best uh, attempt here, the Schrasenlosch. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> um, or a goblin hole. Um, the Aloranenholer. <laughs> or a mandrake cave. Oh, mandrake. Here we are with another Harry Potter reference. Nice. Um, yeah. Others have speculated that these aired stalls were connected to castles themselves and Mm. served as secret escape routes. Uh, And what were we just referencing in uh, association with castles? The Redcap goblins. Um, Mm -hmm.
1: Exactly that. So maybe Robin Redcap was... Going through these tunnels, passages, and then terrorizing the villagers, like, coming out of these things unexpectedly in different places
0: and <laughs> yeah.
1: rounding them. Up. And then that's probably how they transported their victims back to the castle, too, <laughs> right?
0: Exactly. So these tunnels were said to originate under, like, the kitchens, uh, specifically, a lot of the times so of mm-hmm. these old castles throughout Europe. And although experts have still concluded that they wouldn't have served as a practical purpose, like, for actual, like, escape routes due to the size, <laughs> who knows, Right um escape that. routes for what maybe it's not really the people well in if you castle. have a castle
1: siege oh oh my god there's <laughs> one reference in Tristan and old to exactly that where there's like um, an underground tunnel in the keep of the castle and in the end it's Tristan's undoing because him and his friend oh what's his friend's name it's like his cousin anyways he ends up betraying him and it's this whole sad thing but <laughs> definitely very common we
0: should just watch that movie again because you bring it up all <sighs> the time all the time. I guess we should just do it on Film Friday, even if it's... Because it <laughs> technically Friday. is a historical film, I suppose you could say. Oh, yeah. Anyway. For sure. Another idea, though, um, just to get back to these guys here, uh, <laughs> is that... or so, Well, I guess tunnels. Is the idea that they could have originated under the homes of a lot of places in sort of Bavaria and Austria and stuff like that on purpose. Like, people wanted to have sort of places where... A helpful goblin could have an easier time entering their home. Um, remember, we talked about in part one too that a lot of times there would be uh, engravings on the outsides of people's homes uh, in pagan Europe or just very, very like post-pagan right. Europe, almost as like a a welcoming, yeah, almost like almost like an evil eye type deal, oh, uh, yes, or yes, yes. or kind of crossing lines with like gob- or a gargoyle, like on your own house, right. like you carve a symbol of the creature, right?
1: The representation, yeah, wards off exactly. Yeah. Oh, there was one cool thing I got um, from Der Spiegel, again, okay. that was a very, that was an interesting article, but less related to goblin lore, but it's this idea that some believe these caves were used as winter quarters by the Teutonic tribes, which I'm, I apologize in advance, because I actually don't know anything about what the Teutonic tribes, but I kind of want to know more. But anyways, <laughs> and then also the idea that they could have been dungeons for the disabled. Um,
0: dungeons for the disabled. That is a dark thought. That's
1: effed up. I don't even want to go there. Um, another one was that the, some, it says, today some more esoteric souls interpret them as spaces of non-being. I like that. What
0: the hell does that mean? That's an
1: ambivalent zone there. That's like almost like what we were talking about with the void, where there's like that transitory void of like, uh, sort of like a, uh, oh my gosh, what am I trying to say? Like the... well, Purgatory. Purgatory, sure. And I it. mean, mm-hmm. that
0: maybe that's why there's literally no indication of who built them. There's no, there's not even a frickin, th- there's no even real indication of like, um, you know, here's the chiseling marks, right? Yeah. Like, here's the, here's the speculation on like, what type of tools would have been used. Oh. And these types of tools are super duper similar to...
1: There was one reference to like the the double-handed scoop shovel that they would have used and they would have been on their hands and knees essentially. right right.
0: But it's like that's so generic. Yeah. like that's just so generic. I mean if you're digging a tunnel anywhere you're, you're, that's how you're gonna yeah. make a tunnel, right there's um, no there's no clear indication like an arrowhead. Here you find an arrowhead. that's an indication like it was from that group, right Oh here's a true. very clearly a pr- German pagan knife. Or something, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, that's, yeah. So You know, this whole idea of, yeah, going back to, like, spaces of non-being and how, like, what if exactly that? Like, we're not seeing what's actually there. So what we're seeing is almost like the veiled version. So it's like the empty version. But if we end up opening our perception a little bit more, maybe we'll see things. And we'll get to that with North American miners when they say that they've experienced something that is absolutely incredible and that does sort of play into this whole alternative dimension or a portal opening up inside these spaces these ambivalent spaces right these sort of closer through the veil kind of
0: areas or
1: regions yeah
0: <laughs> and the way it's treated in europe is like these subterranean galleries as we described them before are still found quite often like usually by road crews or construction mm-hmm. crews in different development areas and they're promptly filled in
1: yeah, um, yeah they're not
0: really treated as archaeological finds a lot well, of the yeah time.
1: I, I did reference that earlier and right. like the idea that these people aren't professional so they don't really know what to do with them and they have their yeah. own sort of quota to fill so they're just they'll just fill it in yeah yeah
0: and I mean, whether for these reasons or not, right, like the fact that they're found and speculated on for all kinds of different reasons, the, the tunnels have been intimately connected with goblin folklore mm-hmm. uh, over the centuries. And some believe the phenomena can actually be traced into North America as well, which mm-hmm. is where, where we are about to head.
1: Exactly. So kind of our big question now is like, can we tie in similar creatures in the area of uh, North America, United States and beyond? And creatures with this very famous case, the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter, with this sort of phenomenon that we've sort of been, like, experienced, like, (laughs) that we've been alluding to in Europe, that
0: we've been, you know what I mean? Yeah, we've been building up to it, for sure. Exactly. For sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, before we do, before we get into, uh, well, yeah, before we dive right into this, though, we do have a, a brief little promo break here. And the announcement for our Coffee Gator Contest winner. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's coming up in just a minute. Um, We'll be back in just a sec. In the shadowed recesses of our world, monsters lurk. Beasts from a bygone era, obscured by the thickest forests, deepest oceans, and darkest corners. Despite our reluctance to find them, an unlucky few cross paths. It's these experiences that we explore at Monsters Among Us Podcast. My name is Derek Hayes, your faithful host and guide. Each week I explore calls from around the world detailing chilling encounters with mystery beasts, ghosts, UFOs, and a plethora of other strange happenings. You can find Monsters Among Us Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and most other podcatchers. Beware, there truly are monsters among us.
1: All right, so let's get into this. We are announcing our Coffee Gator Contest winner. Do,
0: do, 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 do. my bad drum
1: roll. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so congratulations to Darren Budnick. <laughs> Woo, you have won our lovely little trivia contest. And so Darren is actually going to receive a brand new Vacuum insulated French press coffee press from Coffee Gator.
0: That's right. Yeah.
1: And um, yeah, so they're the official sponsor of Into the Portal now. So all of y'all can go on to their website at coffeegator.com and with our promo code Cork spelled Q-U-A-R-K, you can receive 15% off your purchase That's today. Right. So yeah, you can drink better coffee with Coffee Gator. So many Freaking cool things! It's not just French presses, people. So if you're not into a French
0: press, don't even worry about it. <laughs> no, 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 no! It's got all kinds of amazing stuff. Everything from amazing scales, stovetop brewers, kettles, grinders. It's even got they even do these epic like pour over travel mugs for tea and coffee on the go. That are so they're really and the colors are so cool. I love it. They've got these forest greens and these like charcoal grays and stuff like that. It's just totally yeah. like our jam, and we think you guys will love it too. Oh, totally!
1: High quality, like. Honestly, the aesthetic of it is what won well, me over cuz like
0: Absolutely.
1: Coffee gator it's, you know, we're, we're all cryptozoological, so it's awesome. The logo and... super <laughs> super cool. Yeah, it really is perfect for the more stylish, paranormal love, and coffee addicts. Absolutely. <laughs> so again, yeah, uh, visit com today. Use promo code CORK, spelled Q-U-A-R-K, to get 15% off your purchase. And congrats to Darren.
0: Yeah, congrats, buddy. Woo-hoo.
1: We'll be contacting you shortly just to get your info so we can send that over to
0: you. All and right. yeah, let's get back into it. Let's get back to the show.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So Quick reference here to another North American creature that could be sort of lumped into the goblin lore category. It deserves its own episode on its own, like many sort of small... bipedal strange creatures in north america <laughs> do right um but i wanted to reference it just because it does have a very very simical, simical similar physical appearance <laughs> i'm just shortening things now i'm just gonna start combining words together we'll cut our times in half these episodes are gonna be half an hour on the dot it's gonna be easy <laughs> um, similar to the goblins in europe all right similar to the creatures seen in the hopkinsville case <laughs> these uh this creature is known as the pukwajee Okay, it's fitting the bill as Goblin. Um, It's also spelled, well, it's like spelled uh, P-U-K-W-U-D-G-I-E, sometimes with a dash in between the K and the W. Um, Anyway, yeah, it's translated as Little Wild Man of the Woods That Vanishes. Apparently,
1: <laughs> interesting. <laughs> right.
0: So, not of the cave, but of the wood. Of the woods. Um. So, I, I'm. We didn't get into a ton of detail on this. Again, it deserves its own episode. It's definitely a creature from, I believe, indigenous folklore that kind of had blended into just folklore of the region of Delaware. Um, yeah,
1: actually, that's interesting. You bring that up the whole Native American element because when I was re listening to the Astonishing Legends series on Kelly Hopkinsville in particular, mm-hmm. they were again, they did have a small section where they were referencing just goblins and general, because Kelly Hopkinsville is kind of this weird, awkward split between a UFO and a goblin case. Yeah, pretty much. And they were just kind of referencing the Pukwudgie as well. And Forrest, he actually lumped in uh,
0: the Wendigo into that category as well. So Well, they definitely have some similar attributes, exactly. attributes in mm-hmm. the way that they can vanish, right? Mm-hmm. The creature of the woods that vanishes. Um, but here's the thing. Here's the, here's the similar characteristics, right? Big head, big eyes, similar looking ear-like kind of protrusions like in the Kelly case and some european cases said to be four feet tall around 120 centimeters ish some range a little bit taller than that but essentially like the size of a child Mm -hmm. and according to legend they can appear and disappear at will lure Mm -hmm. people into their layers and deaths use magic they even have tools like um, they'll have arrows and sometimes they can even be poison arrows and the ability to create fire these last couple descriptions are almost, like, you know, b- bleeding into descriptions that remind me of, like, Orang Pendek, where it's, like, these things are smart. They're more of a mm-hmm. cryptozoological case creating that can fire. use tools and are hominid-like, right? They're bipedal, yeah. they're four feet tall, but they live in the woods. Totally. These weird things. That idea of
1: creating fire is definitely more humanoid than, uh, like, creature, goblin-y kind of...
0: Right, goblin. but at the same time, of course, European goblins using tools, working in mines, like, leading people to gold veins or leading them to their death. Mm-hmm um, very, very similar. So we the wanted magic, to just mention so that, it. So that,
1: that sort of idea that they could be associated, not associated, but, um, could be a parallel to the familiars, the goblin familiars and all that kind that of stuff. That
0: too. Absolutely. Yeah. So we, like Amber just referenced, we took a dive back into, uh, Astonishing Legends and their series on the Kelly Hopkinsville case, because the creatures in that case, like Amber just said, have kind of, straddled the line between a ufo case and just this very very strange un- it's a very unique ufo case one of the most iconic oh, in history right it is um well uh, scott and forrest make the reference i think in part two about how it's very very famous in japan yes. um and that it's there the goblins are famous in japan the yes. word goblin specifically right like it is a this case is
1: very very, very famous popular. there and then they did mention, too, the yokai, I believe, too, and how those can kind of bleed into... They're like these spectral, ghostly apparitions, but kind of bleed into goblin lore, too, in some references.
0: Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, uh, of course, we get this uh, Japanese connection, modern connection that they talk about, too, with uh, Pokemon, right?
1: That... Yeah, that was the most interesting for me. The idea... They... Was it Sable 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 Eye. Right. Yeah, and
0: Yeah, and it looks very much like the Pukwaji or the Hopkinsville Goblins. Or like Stitch. Or like Stitch from... Lilo and Stitch, absolutely. (laughs) the
1: the teeth. Hey, maybe uh... that
0: was influenced by Hopkinsville, too, in some way. The eyes and the ears and the head shape and things like that. Oh, for sure.
1: Are you kidding me? Oh, my God. Now that I think about it. Because, obviously, um, Stitch is extraterrestrial in origin. Yes. So, okay. So, the elements we get here that kind of point to this being a UFO case for Kelly Hopkinsville in, in particular is the fact that you do see, A, either a crash landing or you see lights in the sky phenomena shortly before this... All goes down, that <laughs> kinda of thing. So then you got the appearance of these, like you just said, very goblin like creatures that Definitely. supposedly descended on this one farmhouse and terrorized this family of what was it, like eleven people in this house? It
0: was a it was a good chunk of yeah, it was a, a large family living in this rural home, didn't even have running water, um, had basic electricity. No and it was nineteen fifty five. Um, so just to give some other context here, you guys should definitely go check out that series if you haven't. For sure. It's awesome. Um, from Astonishing Legends there. Very thorough. But Hopkinsville is basically a town in rural Kentucky. Um, the area is Kelly. Uh, just, just a very, very sparse kind of group of, uh, of houses around. I think, I think those guys referenced like 120 families in sort of the outskirts of, um, the, the district of Hopkinsville, it's kind of an unincorporated area that this family was, uh,
1: very rural. was in.
0: Right. Um, yeah, it's hardly changed in a half century since it was essentially created this region. It's very, very, you know, that's, this is the heartland of America in a lot of ways, I suppose. I mean, I've never been there, but it's, um, I imagine it as a place that, yeah, hasn't changed a whole lot, um, over the decades. Right. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it's a part of Kentucky in that's very green and flat. Um, Yeah, with not well, I don't even know here. It's described as having like plowed fields or separated only by greenery choked hollows. (laughs) So anyway, I mean these these family this family was like subsistence farming. It's a it's a it's a forested area with yeah not a lot of people, lots of wood wooded areas, and just like places where obviously a crash landing would be a. Mm -hmm. not necessarily noticed in this case it was though
1: one thing that is notable about this case is the fact that it wasn't just the family that witnessed the supposed crash landing of a ufo or unidentified flying object and that to me points to a little bit lends to the legitimacy of what they reported in the end because like we said okay there's going to be elements of this like scott and Forrest get into it way in way much more detail than we're going to bother with right now just go listen to it. It's worth your time. But essentially what happens is you get a lot of people, a lot of people just outright uh, just denying that anything ever took place here. And a lot of it has to do with, I would say, subtle cultural uh, discrimination. Not, I'm not going to say racial discrimination, but it is this sort of idea that, oh, these are just a bunch of dumb hicks in the South that don't know what an owl looks
0: like. Right. If you talk to
1: Joe Nickel, that's essentially what he's going to say is that they were Mm -hmm. drunk and that they saw a bunch of owls. Right. And that to me is absurd. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not of the mind that anything like that occurred. I agree. Because first of all, there's so many things that lend to the defense of the family in this particular scenario. Yeah, I would say. But absolutely. do you want to get into like just the general story? I guess. Like,
0: sure. So yeah. So we've described the kind of area, and this is exactly where this uh, became known as the Kelly Hopkinsville. Uh, the case at Kelly was the first official report, I think, but the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter, so to speak, where, yeah, this encounter with extraterrestrial beings is how it was originally described, but we're getting into goblins. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like Amber kind of alluded to as well, like, UFOlogists have regarded it as one of the most significant and well-documented cases, and then on the flip side, other people use it as just this case of just mass misidentification, uh, natural Uh. phenomena, possibly uh, meteors, owls, and it's used to, for i look at critical thinking. Um, exactly. And there
1: was one supposedly peer-reviewed paper that wasn't very reviewed that Scott Forrest get into in part three, and yes. it's a very interesting conversation as to exactly what you were just saying right yeah. these different lines of or delineations of authority and what people have to say on this definitely
0: and it, and it got spun from the family a lot oh yeah but uh, here's the gist of the story though so on the evening of august 21st in 1955 there was five adults and seven children um in uh, well <laughs> that were living in this house um they claim to have basically gone under siege by uh tiny little green creatures they ended up uh rushing off to the local hawkinsville police station claiming that these alien creatures came from a spaceship and were attacking their farmhouse um they had been holding off the gunfire like holding them off with gunfire because of course they're uh, packed with gats uh, for nearly <laughs> four hours so the two adults uh, elmer sutton and billy ray taylor billy ray was the one who kind of uh took the brunt of like being
1: embellishing Fluffing it, it like, because, mm-hmm. uh,
0: he worked at carnivals, mm-hmm. and that kind of didn't lend a lot to his character, which isn't fair.
1: Well, that's not fair either, but, and, um, and he was, he was, like, the family storyteller, too.
0: Right, so he liked to, he liked to tell stories, but he was clearly he was clearly, like, upset. Like, mm-hmm. the police didn't just send, like, even Scott and Forrest make the point of saying, like, they didn't just send, like, their one, you know, trainee police officer to just kind of, like, deal with these crazy hicks that were going out of control. They mm-hmm. they took it seriously, and they sent a good number. I, I can't remember the exact number.
1: Mm, um, I don't know either, but there was multiple police there at the house.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so, but but before they even got there, they were shooting shooting at these dark figures who repeatedly popped up. Uh, and peered into the windows, and they seemingly kept coming out of the dark. They kept right. coming out of complete darkness into visibility. They would be shot at, and all they would really get was a metallic
1: mm-hmm. Um Like an old-school Western pretty much yeah that's that's an interesting part too because if you go back to the whole joe nickel thing and how it's oh these are just horned owls and blah blah blah. these hicks don't know what owls look like right um
0: so they bust into the police station and they basically the quote was just that they're frantic and they've like we need help we've been fighting them for nearly four hours is this a direct quote here just sorry before you transition into your section
1: (laughs) into my section (laughs) Yeah. yeah i was just gonna say with joe nickel um His whole theory that this is owls doesn't make any sense when you do bring into the picture that whole idea that there is these um, pings going on when you, uh, when they supposedly make contact with these things. And and Sconforce get into it again. Like, owls don't behave in that way where they're just gonna, like, say, drift to the ground, then disappear into the forest, and then reappear shortly after, (laughs) totally fine.
0: It's completely absurd. I don't
1: know. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, As well. There are variations. It goes from an army of goblins um, to where witnesses actually say that they only saw one at at a time. One at a
0: time, yeah.
1: At most two. Um, So, again, this is kind of just, there is a lot of variation. And I don't even know, again, because I haven't gone through the primary sources for this or anything. But I don't know if that was just a misinterpretation from people that have come subsequently or if this was actually from the witnesses. Um, Yeah, what else do we have to say about this here? I don't know like there's these faces appearing at the window, clearly like if these are uh right up in your face, you're not gonna misinterpret that as an owl
0: well but... it's not gonna yeah no it's completely absurd that that would even be suggested at all it's it's it makes absolutely no sense it's the it's even less likely I think than neighbors painting their faces uh dressing up and physically messing with these people um and then running away and then they made up the rest like honestly i I don't know it's it's crazy to me.
1: Yeah, so anyways, like, Joe Nicol, again, like, I'm sorry, I'm kind of making him the devil, but (laughs) he kind of concluded that these were just drunk, intoxicated people that witnessed Great Horn Hells, and that, to me, is absurd, because if you take any sort of scientific approach to this, and even the pseudo scientific approach, right, the process of elimination, and I feel like they, the authors of that paper that Scott and Forrest reference repeatedly in their part three yeah. don't actually follow their own advice, which is really frustrating.
0: It really, really is. And so, the, you made the comment to me, too, that, like, the only real reference at all to liquor came from one, just one out of many, many, many of the police officers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, like, based on nothing in the report, and some no, of the No, original... and he,
1: he honestly didn't even... He had nothing to back that up. He just said, oh, they're probably drinking.
0: That's right. Like the matriarch of the family didn't allow hard liquor in the house and they only ever found a couple of beer cans in there and stuff like that. Yeah, it was Mm -hmm. just... uh...
1: So subsequently, in the days after that, you had a sort of an amateur... Like he was like a fill-in radio host or journalist or whatever at the local radio station that went to the house, interviewed these people, actually got the description down, wrote or wrote, he drew an illustration and... That is kind of the basis of what we know as these Kelly Hopkinsville's goblins. Right. We don't actually get any association to subterranean caves, tunnels, anything like that in this case. The only thing that really connects it back to what we're talking about with our goblin series is this physical description.
0: That's right. And Um, the area
1: that it comes from. Because Kentucky is huge for... A big reason in this series <laughs> and we've just kind of called this section subterranean kentucky
0: yes we have <laughs> exactly so
1: again one of the big questions surrounding this kentucky goblins case is whether or not some of these cave systems might be associated or extend into other states where these sort of sightings have taken place yeah, of exactly. creatures resembling something well, we can call a goblin yes. <laughs> or something like that
0: something of small stature coming out of a cave is what we're working with now bipedal
1: yeah Anyway. Exactly, yeah. The thing is, too, like, Kelly hopkinsville is weird, right? Because you get green thrown in there. You
0: do. You don't um, really
1: see that anywhere else. Like, I haven't seen that anywhere else.
0: We, yeah, I mean, we we haven't really gotten a lot of the color descriptions, even with the European references, right? Um, no. We didn't a lot of the time.
1: Oh, and another really important thing, because <laughs> we're getting into more, more modern stuff and a little bit of um, stuff from a really recently released documentary series called hellier which was a little bit of the original inspiration as to why we decided to do this series on goblin lore and the genesis and the history of it all because there's a lot of unanswered questions for us in that series yes but essentially um yeah we're getting into like oh sorry the point i was gonna make before we move into that is just we never got any description of the feat for european now that i'm thinking about it we don't have any descriptions of what Uh, How many toes?
0: (laughs) No, um, it never really came up. No. Um, They were usually described as creatures that had footwear. They were clothed.
1: Oh, yeah, that Um, was right. The metallic
0: boots. Right? Yeah, yeah, whether it was the metallic boots or whether it was just, I mean, yeah, like they they were, like, yeah, or minor, like dressed like minors. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the folkloric element to it, right? Whereas if you're dealing with a hard, like with physical evidence of a footprint, it's like, okay, well here's, now we're, we're outside the realm. Yeah. It never really came up, but there would be, people would reference that like there was remnants of them being in a tunnel. Right. And that's the connection to the erdstall tunnels. I think mm. there's these tunnels of ridiculously small stature for no mm-hmm. apparent reason. Yeah.
1: Um, so again, yeah, you get, you get a parallel with the stature, the size of the thing that would have been able to fit inside of these things.
0: And the, locations of a lot of these legends.
1: Okay. So what we're kind of getting into now, I guess, is this idea that there is a massive... the the largest cave system in the entire world located in Kentucky. Yes. And so that's why we're kind of referring to this subterranean Kentucky. And it's known as the Mammoth Caves. And it's part of a a national park located in southern Kentucky, bordering North Carolina, which has another really famous... it's the Brown Mountain. So that, again, will play into all this. Definitely. And... Yeah, so this is the largest network of underground caves. Another huge distinction, though, that I'm going to make right off the bat from the Erdstall tunnels to these caves is the fact that they're natural. The Mammoth Caves are naturally formed limestone caves formed over 350 million years. Yes. Just through erosion, water action, that type of thing. Right. And these Erdstall tunnels, definitely not. (laughs) So those are totally different. But again...
0: But still... Subterranean. uh, Exactly. What's using these things? What? lives in these things. I I picture the Erdstall ones as the, like I said before, the driveway to the other larger potential cave systems, Mm -hmm. like these ones here.
1: Exactly. So what we're kind of drawing together here, loose associations, is these Kelly Hopkinville's creatures with possible subterranean creatures lurking in Kentucky and southern Kentucky bordering North Carolina, which actually goes has quite an extensive history itself related to the Brown Mountain lights right and how these have (laughs) again uh developed associations with underground dwelling creatures and this is where it all gets very much like you can go like oh grand unified theory boom because you have this reference to aliens ufos orbs um goblins and possible uh interdimensional sort of things going on so is it extraterrestrial is it interdimensional i don't know
0: no, totally, and, and and that's and that's sort of um, what that Hellier series ended up sort of being based around, right? Yeah. Um, without really kind of pinning down anything, um, but no. it's uh, all
1: very shaky. There's loose associations. I'm not going to say that this is definitive by any means, but I'm saying like there's a lot going on here, and that we can kind of draw maybe parallels. We can draw connections, suppose, like you know, like to descriptions of the creatures themselves and just geographic locations right so okay these mammoth caves are super impressive though like let's get into that because Definitely. to me this is amazing all right so we're talking about over 350 miles or 500 kilometers of your canadian of <laughs> passages that are known and as much as 600 additional miles might exist but are unmapped as of this moment wow making this the largest known cave
0: system in the world that is Crazy.
1: And archaeological evidence indicates that American Indians were actually living in the area and exploring this from the late archaic period between 5,000 to 3,000 years ago, wow. which is amazing. And European settlers, <laughs> I love how they phrase this, European settlers first. Found the caves in
0: 1789.
1: <laughs> wow. It's like, uh, no, you didn't find first. Yeah, you were no, last at the table yeah, there.
0: <laughs> last, dead last.
1: These are really impressive caves. Like they have been designated as a UN World Heritage Site. That wow. was in 1981. And like I said before, these are natural. They're formed from. It's the product of the karst. Pat- photography Oh my god, topography. I can't talk today.
0: Topography.
1: I love karst landscapes. They look beautiful from above. Like you get just all sorts of lakes. You get it almost just looks like it's like a colander with all these perforations, and it's all very flat (laughs) and very. You almost get like the the shield, like the Canadian shield is actually karst, but but topography. Oh my god, I can't say that (laughs) word. (laughs) Photography. I'm trying to say like photography and oh, photography man. at the same time.
0: <laughs> now you're just all oh, mad. Uh, <laughs> the struggle is real, people. The struggle is real. That's but so funny. One
1: thing I did want to bring up too is this bottomless pit. It was just so freaking cool, man, yeah, that's and frightening because apparently it's bottomless. Is this a hell pit?
0: Uh, well, that's very much like, uh, yeah, the, the pit that uh, was allegedly beneath Hoska, like yeah. places where the, the flow of water, there's no Demons, exit to it, right? Demons, things
1: coming out of it. Oh my goodness. Okay. But anyways, this bottomless pit was actually first crossed by a slave tour guide in, uh, I believe, oh, I can't remember what the year it was, but it was in the mid-1800s. Okay. And this guy, he was a slave, and he his name was Stephen Bishop. He worked in the cave from um, 1838 to 1856, and he was the one that crossed the pit. I don't even want to imagine how the hell he would have done that. Like, do you just, like, throw a rope? Or, like, I don't know. Do you do, like, the crossbow where you just, like, have, like, the line, and you just, like, shimmy across it like Ace Ventura in the beginning <sighs> of The Nature Calls? <laughs> I don't know.
0: <laughs> I have no idea. That's definitely, uh... Pretty
1: cool, though. Like, he made history, and, like, he... Mapped out all sorts of previously unknown caves and tunnels and caverns. Wow! I'm wondering now, is this the system that's featured in the Descent?
0: Ooh, good question. I can't remember that. I
1: have no idea.
0: You really just don't want to rewatch that movie, so I, I suppose it. we won't know.
1: No, too mind. terrified.
0: I'm too scared. <laughs> well, what, why don't we just go looking for goblins instead? And we can descend ourselves. Oh,
1: but in the Descent, right, you do get goblin-like creatures in the end, right?
0: Very much so. Ugh oh. I mean, they are subterranean, small, slippery uh, creatures of nefarious intent,
1: and that's where we get into all sorts of cool things. Because unlike these Erdstall tunnels of Europe that are like super sparse and unoccupied, uninhabited, there's nothing going on there supposedly. um, This actually contains a rich ecosystem, so including some of the some animals that actually need to live in caves known as uh, troglobites okay. there's 14 species um of those and this is kind of interesting they call it a cavern cavernicolous creature <laughs> wow yeah and then there's um there's this one species of eyeless cave fish which is like I I think it's endemic to this environment, but it basically has evolved to the lightless environment by no longer growing eyes.
0: Very interesting. Which is really cool to me. Super weird. Could you imagine that type of a life? That'd be so bizarre. Oh, it's Very much like the same sort of, like, you know, deep sea creatures that live in complete darkness. Oh,
1: totally. And And they're all, like, see-through. They're all, like, translucent. It's bizarre. There was one I saw that was, like, a translucent scorpion-looking thing. It was pretty cool. Dang. Yeah. So then the question becomes, obviously, like, it, home to a lot of different species things going on here. Could this be home to subterranean goblin-like creatures, too? Uh,
0: potentially, right? Mm-hmm. I do just want to say something, too, about the Hopkinsville case. Oh, yeah? You know, the association with the UFOs and the sighting of a potential meteor or a craft of some kind before this event took place is kind of why, obviously, it's associated as a UFO case. Mm-hmm. But we're also dealing with 1955. This was an, this was a not only a decade in which... UFO sightings went crazy, but that year in and of itself was very much UFO oriented. This isn't even that far after the Maury Island incident and things like that, right? Um, So UFOs were on the mind. I mean, sci-fi movies were going crazy in the Mm -hmm. 1950s as well. And I don't think goblins or the possible association with other types of creatures was as likely as UFOs.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, like what was in vogue at the time pretty mm-hmm. much. Well, it's the fashion.
0: <laughs> the fashion, and also, obviously, there was a sighting of something in the sky, yes. but that automatic association with that to this event, even though th- that, you know, other than it be mm-hmm. happening in the same rough area, is kind of technically a loose connection, because you don't actually get a physical craft or okay. whatever else, right?
1: That's interesting, too. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're totally right about that. I feel like there is this awkward sort of not juxtapositioning, but like an awkward sort of placement with these UFO versus like a goblin, like crypto, whatever kind of thing. And the conflation arises, I think, in the 60s when you get the introduction of a man we're going to talk about in just a second. And he (sighs) is the famous Brown Mountain case of these subterranean goblins that are supposedly extraterrestrial creatures. And Brown Mountain is known, very well known for having orb phenomena, light phenomena that's unexplained, uh, and right. we're going to get into that in just a second here, but sure. I, we, we have a couple other things we want to cover.
0: Yeah, this <laughs> story to is crazy. Kentucky
1: It is really, really cool. So, yeah, Kentucky has um, a strange history of underground run-ins with, i term, inexplicable folk.
0: Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> or
1: simply people disappearing into these labyrinth like networks of tunnels and never emerging and having no evidence of what actually happened to them. So Pretty vanishing, wild. vanishing underground, no evidence of anything. No,
0: Anyways. and no reason why they should have vanished. Exactly.
1: Oh my gosh. Okay, so this is eighteen. Or sorry, nineteen forty nine, Pikeville, Kentucky. And this is a quote: one of the most baffling disappearances um, on record um, centers around a truck coal mine three miles east of Pikeville on Chloe C- Creek in Pikeville County, Kentucky, on a warm day in September, nineteen forty nine. Marvin Johnson, age 20, and his cousin, George Johnson, age 19, were working at the mine with their fathers, including Tom Johnson Sr. I don't know who that is. Apparently he's important. Okay, all right. <laughs> They ignited a fuse um, to a charge of black powder to loosen a coal seam. Then they left the mine to eat their lunches and awaited the blast. They heard the muffled explosion, and after waiting until the smoke had cleared away, the two boys started toward the mine entrance to resume shoveling. They carried an old-fashioned carbide cap lamp, which later was found unlit at the mine entrance. That was the last their fathers ever saw of them. (laughs) They're in there, Tom Johnson Sr. later said. We saw them go in. As the hours passed and the two boys failed to appear from deeper in the mine where they were thought to be working, their fathers grew grew alarmed they notified state and federal mine authorities and within a few hours over 200 men were searching the mine's dangerous labyrinth of crisscrossing corridors. The searchers found no trace of the boys. A pair of bloodhounds brought to the mine found no trail. After three weeks, the the state and federal mine inspectors reported that they were certain every part of the mine had been investigated and that there was no possibility that a rock fall had sealed the two cousins in an abandoned room. State police circulated a missing persons bulletin and police authorities in cities to which the boys might have gone were notified. No clue ever found. It never turned up. And that's, that was from Fate wow. Magazine. So again, take that with a little bit of a grain of salt, I guess. A little bit of a
0: grain of salt, but still, I mean, that potentially ties into the lore. I mean, the Pukwudgie with the luring um, yes. or with the goblins in Europe and the ideas of potentially, you know, uh, tricking miners, right? Tricking them into mm. leading them to a vein of gold when really they are leading them to something else.
1: Totally. And then the whole idea that the, the lamp was found at the entrance, again, speaks to me that something came and left it there. Right?
0: Or that they were almost in a trance and they just put it down and wandered, wandered into, into the, the dark? abyss. Just into the dark. I don't know. <gasps> That's easy. that's almost even more freaky, like Stuff some sort of, of mind control, right? Yeah. It gets even weirder. Actually, a few years earlier than this, in 1945 in Pineville, Kentucky, there were mine workers who were actually trapped underground. So in this case, there was a cave-in. Mm-hmm. And while trapped, they insisted that they witnessed a figure resembling a lumberjack emerge from a door in a wall of the shaft of mm-hmm. one of the mine shafts. Okay. <laughs> so this is this is a quote here. Um, when they were rescued some of the men insisted that they saw a quote door in one of the walls open and a man dressed as a lumberjack emerge from a well-lit room. Hmm. Okay? Coming from well another place room. of some kind. I don't even know how, what to make of that. <laughs> After assuring the men that they would be rescued, the strange visitor returned into the room and closed the door. Hmm. Just disappearing. So, into other, the so other dimensions. Exactly. Other similar accounts have been reported, uh, during similar mine disasters, uh, such as the one at Shipton, Pennsylvania, uh, where a similar lumberjack type creature or well, type
1: man, man mm-hmm. I mean, in the, I don't, they never say the size. Eh? They
0: don't say the size. Um, but that ties in with just the minor goblin type, uh, appearance, yeah. right? The other
1: description is like this telephone line man type of man. So it's like a lumberjack or a telephone line man. So that's interesting. Like a professional kind of.
0: Interesting. Okay, yeah. so it's, like, almost as if in some cases they almost take on the role of a guardian, guardian angel, in a way,
1: mm-hmm. like,
0: offering the trapped men, like, you know, a, you know, a, a another... light in the dark, essentially, but in other cases, well, it's yeah. uh, very much the opposite of that.
1: Well, not even that so much. It kind of reminds me of, like, Injured Cold, where it's, like, because they'll tell them, you'll be okay, and, or they'll say, like, you know, like, kind of be like, oh, you're gonna get rescued, like, I basically can see see further down the line like an injured cold like when we watched uh, the mothman prophecies with right. richard Gere. <laughs> shout out to uh to uh, so richard haddon richard yeah shout
0: haddon. out man two
1: Richards. i was like oh wait a second Is his name richard or richard <laughs> <laughs> that must have
0: got real confusing on the set <laughs> it must have
1: been yeah. <laughs> hey richard did you get this juice <laughs> <laughs> but yeah okay so the, there's a lot to this the idea that there's a door Um, And this lumberjack thing would emerge from a well lit room. That instantly reminds me of Skinwalker Ranch when there would be these portals or these sort of doorways or or these these circles of light that would get bigger and then things would emerge from them. Right. Yeah. Hmm. and then go back into them, and then would, like, close back up. And that, it was almost as if they could see, like, the family. I can't remember their names off the top of my head, but they would, in the night sky, they would describe how they would see something open, and it was like they were looking at daylight in another dimension.
0: Bizarre, right? This yeah. is reminding me of Skinwalker Ranch. For sure. Um, which uh, doesn't necessarily lend to me you know, claiming that this isn't really grand. Like, there's lots of connections here that you can talk about grand unifying theory, like you mentioned before, mm-hmm. um, because we're dealing with perceivably individual phenomena that happen to be happening at the same time but that they could be connected i don't know how many hard black lines we can draw between these things to really connect them
1: well that's just it we're not even really trying to do that so much but we're just kind of illuminating
0: all these sort of we're setting the stage for it anyway, uh, well, at yeah. least with things tangible things to reference, mm-hmm.
1: right? Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, so going back to the idea of North Carolina and the Brown Mountain connection, mm-hmm. and this was referenced in the Hellier series, and like we mentioned before, that was sort of one of the um, the reasons why we decided to cover spark. goblins, mm-hmm. because we wanted to do more of our own digging on it. Um, so yeah, they, they mentioned this, the Brown Mountain of North Carolina. Um, it's like you said, mentioned due, due to the prevalence of orb, UFO, strange Mm. lights. Um, very, very strange, very, very strange. Long
1: Um, history of this. Here's a quote
0: from, uh, Brown Mountain Lights, a 2017, uh, book. So, okay, hold on a second here. From Wiseman's view on Linville Mountain, the lights can be seen well the first appear like a large star coming over the mountain. Sometimes they have a reddish or bluish cast on dark nights. They pop up so thick and fast. that it's impossible to count them. Mm-hmm. And that's actually comes from weak and weird.
1: Yeah. That was a quote from, I, I read through all their whole article with the hellier series there. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting though, because this goes back way, way longer, right? Like 1200 AD Cherokee natives are witnessing this phenomena happening wow. on Brown mountain. So it's not as if this is new by any means, um, yeah, and like we said right, like so Brown Mountain is on the northwest side of North Carolina. It's close to the southern border of Kentucky.
0: Did I say border? I think you said bordy. The <laughs> southern border <laughs> of Kentucky. <laughs> the
1: southern bordy. It's forty oh, all over again. Yeah,
0: our <laughs> dog has a board. Uh, it's just literally just a Piece of wood, and we named it Bordy. Bordy. she likes to chew on it.
1: <laughs> we, we chuck it into the water, and she goes and fetches it, and it's really Come awkward. Save Bordy. Gets a couple of slivers, I would That's imagine. Right, yeah, yeah, well. Anyways, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, the southern border of Kentucky. So this is kind of loosely where the Mammoth Cave Network starts. Right. So possible connections, right? And Yeah, so you were mentioning these lights, right? Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people have brought up this idea that it could be a version of the Fata Morgana phenomena.
0: Oh, okay. And
1: it's almost like a trick of the light, right? So just to recap that, um, so basically from large different distances, you can get an inversion of temperature, so air masses. So if you get an inversion of that, it can actually create these long distance, like kilometers and miles long of... um, like it's basically like apparitions of light It almost yeah. looks like orbs we reference this in our min min light i was just series. gonna say
0: yeah our patrons uh that yeah that that listen to that will will be familiar with this totally sure.
1: yeah and so basically what happens is you get what appears to be like a, a charlie red star like phenomena oh, yeah. or like a just an orb like thing that's just like can act in very strange ways right yeah. like again this non-ballistic motion right. all sorts of weird things so
0: here we are again i mean this is not goblins this is just phenomena exactly. emanating from Caves also associated with subterranean, possibly. Well,
1: exactly, right. Okay, so just to explain that further so the trick of the light was actually debunked. Um, Ah. This was, this is not Fata Morgana. By any means, Um, there was this one instance where there was a lot of flooding that occurred and it wiped out all the tracks for the locomotives in the area for weeks. Interesting. And at this time, the phenomena was still there. It continued on.
0: So there's no way. No
1: interruptions. And the fact that it's Hmm. like seen in the Appalachian Mountains is like it's on a mountain. It's not like, because like Min Min Lights, that extends over like. Flat. Exactly. Like you get subtle dips and hills and whatever, but it's not a very different
0: landscape though. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, the real question here then, right, is this, could Brown Mountain and some sightings of these strange things be connected to possible subterranean phenomena? Okay. Uh, so there is, is this actually... This is my favorite part of Totally. This so there is a story that actually connects the lights, the lights phenomena to subterranean creatures living in a base deep inside the mountain.
1: <laughs> and this comes in 1961. So a local furniture salesman by the name of Ralph <laughs> Lale actually claimed So he was a pretty ordinary guy up until this point in his life.
0: I'd say so, yeah. But
1: he got kind of fascinated. He heard about the brown lights phenomena. He went there, studied it extensively, like, observed it quite a bit, and actually ended up following it. And he claimed that when he followed it, he found, like, a secret entrance into this brown mountain, and he found a race of tiny extraterrestrial creatures that had made their home in the mountain. So this is where we're connecting orb light phenomena Brown Mountain, Kentucky, subterranean, all this kind of stuff. So it's all very loosely.
0: <laughs> well, hell, I mean, geez, we, we could draw parallels to all kinds of episodes we've done then too, right? Like, what about the Depths of Baikal episode where mm-hmm. there's orbs being seen and then all of a sudden these... The silver occ- swimmers? I mean, they're not subterranean, but they are down there just as deep. Uh, and aquatic. silver? <gasps>
1: silver could be interpreted as, like, a misinterpretation of, um, of uh, what am I trying to say? Like, a
0: semi-transparent... Ooh, uh- okay yeah yeah, yeah. translucent yeah. people yeah, definitely right? so in a place where there's not much light
1: oh my god what if they're like half newts half people
0: half newts well paracelsus makes the <laughs> reference to salamanders as one of the elementals there right? You go. um <laughs> with in that yeah so there's we're drawing lines all over the place here um
1: but the thing is too with lael is that in one story it was like he had found this race in another story he was kidnapped <laughs> i don't know which to believe there <laughs>
0: okay um okay yeah and and you've, you've got the the continuation over here i guess i'll read it um, mm-hmm. so when he actually okay so after following the mysterious brown mountain lights through uh, the forest one night he claimed to have stumbled onto a camouflaged entrance in the side of one of the mountains mm-hmm. and then when he entered this opening he claimed to have been met by creatures from another planet or at least that's how he perceived it right yeah i mean if you don't have any other frame of reference that's what you're probably gonna think
1: it's the 60s there's like... no
0: interdimensional. Identity potential oh, totally, whatever yeah. right so his family and friends noted that sometimes he would disappear for weeks at a time as he explored these intricate mazes inside the mountain very cool um, and then in 1965 he wrote a book uh, filled with these bizarre details related to his his journey through these tunnels mm-hmm. and his his alleged discovery um, but he didn't just return from the alien cave base with an unbelievable tale he actually returned with something else as well um, he claimed to possess a full-fledged alien mummy that he kept on display in the back of his shop and mm-hmm. sometime in the late 1970s, right?
1: He had a rock shop. <laughs> Just <FYI. laughs>
0: Like selling, like, rocks.
1: Like Tony's Rock Shop.
0: Oh, I used to love that shop <laughs> I when I was love a kid. Go get some amethyst or something. That makes
1: there? sense, though, if you think about it, right? If he's going into this mountain to find rocks he's quarrying rocks he's bringing back crystals all sorts of crazy stuff and supposedly right. an alien mummy i'm mm-hmm. gonna
0: make this reference right now because we haven't yet um, with the previous story with the miners trapped and seeing a lumberjack and things too when you are trapped in small spaces and there's possibly gaseous admissions and mm-hmm. other types lack of, lack of things of and lack of oxygen there's hallucinations yeah. that can take place
1: and just to clarify that even further the quote was some of the miners claimed not yes. all so right again yeah
0: but the ones that didn't claim didn't necessarily go out of their way to deny. Deny. Maybe they were to... passed
1: out. <laughs> Maybe they were crying in the corner and they couldn't actually comprehend what was going on, so they didn't even see it. Maybe. That'd probably be me. I'd just be weeping. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm gonna
0: die. <laughs> oh, man. So, happen. yeah, this alien mummy, um, a researcher by the name of uh, Timothy Green Beckley, Mm-hmm. A UFO just, um, he uh, had been one of the many UFO hunters to actually visit the area and managed to take a photo of this alien on one of his visits.
1: I believe it's the only known record of this alien actually being in existence, and I actually have it um, in my images folder, so we will be including that on our website. Definitely. Maybe that'll be the image of the week. Right. yeah
0: And the question, obviously, with that is, is if it's, uh, what what the hell is it? And uh, this and what guy. What happened to it? What happened to it? This mm-hmm. guy's claiming it was an alien, but he was going into caves, and that's definitely odd for what we're dealing with today.
1: It's for me that comes down to exactly that perception, interpretation. Yes. And the limits of such. <laughs> like and the tools that you have to comprehend what is going on yeah, around you. Yeah,
0: the lens you're looking through, yes. right? Yes.
1: Because again, right, this is a very modern case, and you get him. Immediately go extraterrestrial with this. And who knows what kind of quote unquote information was relayed from this sort of alien race to him as to what their origins were and whatever else. Like I don't I haven't read his book. I can't remember what it's actually called. I don't think we actually referenced it. But look it up. It, Ralph Lale, it's definitely a real book. Originally published as a pamphlet that he just had featured in his little rock shop. Right, right. But again, right? Okay, so you get him interpreting this as extraterrestrial. We have the, I keep forgetting their name, but, like, the German goblin, right? The kobold. The kobold. I feel as though, again, we're getting culturally relevant interpretations. Kobolds, like, I don't know if there's any reference in medieval German culture to UFOs. Like you know what I mean? I don't think that was a thing.
0: Not like t- not not standard, not no. in the public consciousness, but there was definitely sightings obviously mm-hmm. throughout history, but yeah, not not like the capold would have been obviously.
1: Exactly. Like it's not like they would associate that with saucers coming from the sky or exactly. strange lights and orbs and all that stuff. Like we we didn't get any reference to that not at, at all. all. No. So that's kind of a unique feature to North American
0: goblin phenomena. A lot UFO of the time. Right? Yeah, except for the Pukwudgie and mm-hmm. creatures like this, oh, true. Um, that are, you know, dwelling in the woods and things like that of small stature. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of, a, it's, it's hard to really come to any sort of conclusion with this. Oh, we, no. we obviously <laughs> were, we, we loosely referenced the Hellier series and they, they, um, they were drawing the connections to the Hopkinsville and trying to
1: and John Keel.
0: And John Keel and these types of things. You know, my question is, um, we've got a lot of questions with that yeah. series. We're not going to get get no. into picking that apart or anything like that. But, um, one of the things that stood out to me that was interesting was the idea that in the Hopkinsville case, I mean, the family was besieged by these creatures, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, in the Hellier series, that's how they were making that association because this alleged message they were receiving was a similar case, right? Like under siege and harassing the kids and tapping on the window and Mm -hmm. things like that but then when it came to the attempts at communication it was like you were dealing with some it was like they were dealing with something that was much more like an injured cold like it was much more like why would you go from (laughs) tp in a house and uh just causing mischief to all Mm -hmm. of a sudden being very timid and only communicating in very sparse strange ways um right those, those things are very 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 disassociated and don't don't have any real connections. Well, What are we dealing with here? Is it a creature or is it a single connection to a world of creatures? Um, Exactly. Right? And and we're... Yeah. So anyway, the...
1: Yes. And so, okay. And even just to clarify that even more, the connection between Hopkinsville and this series of emails that they received in 2012 from this unknown source right they were never able to confirm where it came from they had like three different ip addresses in the end right right and they were i think they kind of implied that that was just kind of like a masking mechanism so they don't know where it originally yeah come. could yeah. have potentially been in hell it could have not been mm-hmm. um but again so for that story there was a lot of parallels to the kelly hopkinsville um siege in his account except way longer right because he was experiencing this over a series of months or years or whatever until he decided to uh flee as the story goes um but again you get that's where you get um a reaffirmation of the physical description that relates back to kelly hopkinsville and then you get the added element of them coming from the caves Right. And the footprints, right, that he provided that he showed the entrance that looked like it was full of slurry, right? So that was like washout from a, from a mine, mine shaft entrance. Yeah. And then the the footprints that almost looked like teletubby footprints to me. Yeah, <laughs> like something very, along
0: those lines. It was very much
1: like that. But um, so that's where we get this association, right? And then they were tying it into the Brown Mountain, right? Because we get this Ralph Lale connection and how yeah. he was basically saying that there is a race of these tiny weird ufo creature like things yeah so yeah so there's all sorts of parallels and for me it's like i have a hard time i have a hard time referencing any of those emails because i just feel like there's a very shaky foundation for the legitimacy of what that guy said he'd never he, nothing was ever confirmed like this guy could literally be some freaking 13-year-old boy that just has way too much time on his hand and had a series of two years where he's like, oh, fun, I'll just send a random email every eight months and just fuck with these people and get whatever. Yeah, maybe not you know? 13,
0: but I mean, totally. I'm yeah, not, yeah, yeah, worked, not 13. I, mean, <laughs> I would say maybe, like,
1: yeah, 17 to 18. I, right, I mean,
0: yeah, uh, obviously someone familiar with these types of cases, right? Well, And, exactly. the, and the Mothman case, probably. And, oh, definitely. And all those types of things. Because uh, then they
1: kind of started to imply this whole Terry Wrist thing and making yeah. these sort of subtle loose parallels to the whole keel phenomena yeah.
0: and i will i will say like i give him a ton of credit for the the cinematography and it was well done well put together series and and you know we i, I enjoyed it to a certain extent definitely was disappointed in the outcome and with some of the methods mm-hmm. uh used mm-hmm. but overall definitely just different than what what we're what we would probably do which is yeah. kind of cool right i mean you got to try things different it's a place ways. To start, yeah definitely and um definitely a unique take because it takes us into that world of the grand unifying theory here yeah. and crossing over from different cultures from across the pond. So I'm glad we went back and did that because yeah. I really kind of framed it better for me. Yeah. in trying to wrap my head around all this because well, it's super exactly weird. It.
1: Yeah. Wrapping your head around it all. Um, for me, right? Like by the time we got to part end of part five of that series, there was just, So much left unanswered for me that we—it was was great. Exactly, there's so yeah left unanswered, and that was a great. It's just great inspiration for what we've done with these.
0: With this. Part I feel of our like there team. probably will be a part three that we end up doing, not in sequence with this, but like just as a follow up. Mm, uh, yeah. Because who knows like where things are going to go? And I think uh, well, there'll be more stuff for us to follow up on, with their series too, um, mm-hmm. from Weak and Weird and stuff like that. Yeah. But um, ultimately, do you believe that goblins exist? Oh, physically you're asking me or metaphysically. Yes, <laughs> no, like, I'm asking you. I
1: thought you were just throw that out. I'm
0: asking Well, I'm asking everybody. I'm asking well, of everyone course, out of there. Course. But uh yeah, I, I'm curious. I want to get your answer here before we uh, sign off.
1: Well, of course. I I the more I dive into this, the more I believe that there is something there is something going on here and whether like we said I I'll always go back to this perception, interpretation yeah. and the ultimate subjectivity of it all right? right you are inherently limited by your your way of thinking your way of knowing definitely and the tools that you have like the knowledge that you have and, and so again i'll go back to this like culturally relative sort of hypothesis where it's like you are going to see instances and a lot of the terminology same i it's going to be different yes. but the phenomenon the descriptions are going to be very very similar
0: definitely i'm a hundred percent on board with mm-hmm. that and it's and it's yeah it's it's culturally based and it's era based so it's mm-hmm. like when we're looking back into ancient greece and then the evolution from that into pagan europe mm-hmm. and then into germanic europe and all these types of things there's no and then when we look nordic too and we're mm-hmm. like troll folklore dwarf um folklore and those associations with goblins and the very real beliefs and legends up there of trolls mm-hmm. living in the woods and stuff like that then we cross over to the pond into Eras like 1955, a heavily packed UFO, alien, extraterrestrial oriented era. era, you're getting different associations with very similar creatures.
1: Oh, totally. And isn't that an interesting, I'm not going to call it a devolution, but it's definitely like a, I guess, an evolution of the concept, right? Because in ancient Greece, these things were closely associated with demigods of, of the world, of right. the gods, and all this kind of stuff. Now, what we're getting is close association to cryptozoology, occult, yes. and then um, a UFO. So, right. it's almost like this new sort of yeah. cult of religion or something. Totally. That...
0: And I think alchemy is kind of almost like the, the the rope straddling the lines between that old world version of it and thinking about the elementals and possible, mm-hmm. you know, metaphysical ideas exactly. like that. And then our, our UFOlogy... It, same sort of interdimensional but of. different kind version of it modern mm. day you mm-hmm. know what I mean and Paracelsus straddled that line for us real nice there Definitely. which is really cool yeah I certainly believe that there is something like uh goblin creatures that are elementals they they can come and go maybe as they please or maybe not maybe just in areas like like mm. yeah, certain certain cave systems mm-hmm. they just happen to be sometimes
1: yeah, exactly. I'm just going to like leave off on this one point about the Airdstall tunnels and, and the whole where we get these apertures, these openings um, in the minors of the cases that we saw in Kentucky and, and the US and how like, again, right, the, the veil. Is there a veil? And we're just not seeing. It's almost like... right. Yeah, the limits again of our perception. But anyway, right. what do you guys think? We want to know.
0: Totally, reach out to us. Send us a send us direct emails. We love that. Into the yeah. portal mailbox at gmail.com or hit us up on Facebook at Into the Portal Podcast, Instagram at Into the Portal Podcast, Twitter at Into the Portal One,
1: mm-hmm. and uh,
0: yeah, Facebook come form. come follow us on there and. Um, yeah, we really want to know what you guys think of this. We yeah. really, really want to know. Do these yeah, yeah. things exist, and in what way do they exist? Exactly. Describe that to us, because we, because <laughs> we want to know. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for listening. On um, yeah,
1: and uh, sorry, just more specifically, okay, like yeah, yeah. this whole connection between the yeah, the European to North American yes. Brown Mountain, Kentucky Mammoth Caves, all this kind of stuff. We Absolutely. want to know. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I just right before we sign off here I guess congratulations again to Darren Budnick yes for congrats that man
0: you'll be uh, we'll be sh- we'll be sending that off uh, very very soon here for you yeah and, we'll be hearing um, from
1: us shortly we
0: hope that you'll uh, post some pictures of you making some epic coffee and uh, <laughs> so we can take a look at you enjoying that
1: get your latte art on <laughs>
0: that's right that's right well he's <laughs> gonna need it out there I think he's on Pender Island and they have been getting Oof. hammered with snow and uh, he didn't move out there for the snow they but moved butter. out there to avoid that so uh, nice oh. cozy up with a nice hot coffee yeah but before we sign off obviously thank you so so much to our producer to so charlene ramler we couldn't mm-hmm. do this without you and all of our patreon supporters thank you guys so much and thank you to all of our listeners as usual we hope you enjoyed this series on goblins and that you learned a few things and we definitely did yeah. along the way here do we know what we're doing next week for film friday
1: oh um
0: not quite yet no
1: we might actually be taking a break
0: from Ooh, okay that's okay <laughs> Well, we'll post about it and let you guys know um but uh, until then thank you guys so much
1: yeah until next time